Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? It's going okay. I'm sitting on my floor recording <laughs> this podcast with you, which is a lot of fun. Good My times. back already hurts. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll hopefully be keeping things a bit shorter than they have been recently this week, <sighs> listeners, uh, because there are fewer finales. There are still finales, yes. but there are fewer. So we're heading in. We have a, a couple new shows are starting back up or returning shows are coming back in the next week or so. But um, but but on the whole, things are like sort of getting to a more manageable level and that will be reflected in this episodes show list which includes several series i was able to catch up on uh <laughs> that uh certainly i had i had gotten behind on and i'm, I'm sure that's also the case for you Noel. like things are a little bit more manageable without all of like the cw shows here and, and everything so that 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 lets us breathe a little bit it's nice it does it, it let me ke- watch all of the detour in like a day and a half yeah, and let me watch all of Catastrophe Season 2 in a day. It's good times. Yeah. It's good times. Um, well, we're going to be talking later in the show with friend of the show, Elena Rivera, who came back on to talk uh, Agent Carter with us. That was a lot of fun. That'll be coming at the end of the podcast for this week's DVD shelf. Uh, but up here at the top, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit, Noel, and, sure. and engage with the listeners, too. I want to hear what you guys all think. Um, because there are certain uh, unfortunate events in, in one of the – the episodes we're going to be talking about later this episode um, in in person of interest uh, that uh, have led to, at least in in my timeline, a bit of a revival of the discussion of fan entitlement around character deaths, particularly, or just um, writer like fans being upset with how showrunners and writers are are crafting their stories and, and where the line is and what in fans being upset and voicing that and having a deserved voice in the conversation and where entitlement begins. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this. Um, It might just be my feed that's talking about this, but I'm curious what you think. Well, I'll I'll say that I've been off Twitter for um, most of this week because I've been busy with a lot of stuff. So I haven't really looked at Twitter all that much. Um, but a lot of this started more so with um, uh, people getting upset about the Captain America stuff. Both, yeah, absolutely, the Hail Hydra stuff, mm-hmm. and which is frankly a justifiable thing to be upset about because it's bullshit. Yeah, it totally um, is. <laughs> but then the other thing I think it feeds into that is um, the whole "Get Captain America Boyfriend" um, hashtag, which is both fun but also kind of acknowledging where characters are progressing and that sort of thing. And that these characters are are very flexible. If Captain America can basically be a Nazi, he can be gay too. He can be a gay Nazi. You know, or just somewhere else on a you know, with a yeah. fluid sexuality. He doesn't need to be right. defined as something. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So that that kind of spurred on it it's part of a much larger conversation with um like people being upset that there's an all-female Ghostbusters and all sorts of things. So it's all, a lot of it, this is getting conflated into a number of different things. And my general feeling about anyone who is calling other people entitled for responding to art in particular ways and wanting art to be more 
progressive. I'm not necessarily advocating that the Ghostbuster fanboys who are complaining are being progressive because they're not. They're just being ridiculous. Um, sorry, come at me. Uh, <laughs> Ghostbuster fanboys. I have both. I have both on my DVD shelf, which is in a box. Uh, but it's just you're not. No. So my general sense is that anyone who's saying that someone's entitled is a missing the understanding of how fandom operates, which means that they're, they've never participated in a fandom community in any way, shape, or form, and they don't understand how these people interact with texts uh, with one another and within themselves, basically, because there are so many factions, factions is the wrong word, but factions within fandoms. And it's a, it's a much stickier situation than I think a lot of journalists and folks necessarily understand. Mm-hmm. And and this is coming from someone who's like studied fandom a little bit um, in postgraduate and undergraduate work. Uh, so my perspective is a little bit different. And then the other part is, is just that they don't understand how the media landscape has changed a lot within the past like 15 years. Uh, Sam Adams has a really good piece in Slate about this very thing, about how we're no longer really consumers of media any longer as we used to be. And now we're now because of the degree of access and I'm using air quotes, even though it's like partial air quotes or single air quotes (laughs) um, that we have now to writers, showrunners and show PR um, people through social media that we're active participants. He calls us share, Sam Adams calls us uh, shareholders in media, which is a really good, I think, term, even though it still is founded on a capitalistic principle, but most television is founded on a capitalistic principle, so it kind of works. But my general sense, like I said at the top, before I kind of mapped all this out, was just, it's anyone who, if fans are being entitled, they're being entitled for a good reason, because more, they're much more organized and much more vocal now, and it's not just limited to uh, listservs and save your show campaigns and brief petitions and that sort of thing. It's much more easier to get involved and active, and especially when you wrap in identity politics, which is something we can talk about when we get a person of interest uh, a bit more. Um, it's much more important than I think it used to be, and it's much more visible is I think the biggest word and the biggest change that's come about is that it's visible. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, the, the element of this that I'm most frustrated about, I think is, and you mentioned a bit of the conflation of these different topics. When I see these articles, uh, that have gone up about, you know, angry fans are sending death threats or like the misogynist crap that a, a segment of Ghostbuster aficionados have been spewing out there. I get really irritated that they're that that is what is given the fan label. It's like fans react to Ghostbusters. It's like, no, their primary descriptor, as far as I'm concerned, is not that they're a fan of Ghostbusters, but that they're an asshole. So anybody who's sending a, like like making threats to people using hate speech and just generally being abusive towards others online. It's not because they're a fan. It's because they're a dick. And so to, 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 
conflate something like, you know, the the response to I still haven't started doing it. But based on this week's person of interest, I think that's going to push me to doing my my statistical analysis. I was talking about earlier about deaths this year in genre TV on network TV. Um, Box has. Oh, did you not see boxes like death count? No, I haven't. They beat me to it. I'll have to go check that out. That's great. I'll I'll, I'll send it to you. It's really, really good. Is this the the piece that uh, Todd Vanderwerf? did yeah i yeah, haven't had a chance to read it yet yeah, yeah um it's really good anyway continue. But people Sorry. complaining about um you know the disproportionate deaths of female characters on television this year as compared to male characters i think that is a conversation and a complaint to have uh and that is from consumers of media they are also fans of these shows that's why they're more passionate about characters being killed off on the shows that they that they watch but that's I think that's a completely different conversation than why are there women in this reboot of a thing that I love? Because um, I, I the, what's defining the conversation is in, in these two cases, I think is very, very different. What's sparking that conversation is very different. Um, and, and, and so I, I just I'm I've been frustrated to see that terminology. I mean, and as, as someone who defines self-defines as a fan of television and have you know I've always pretty much always loved television and film and storytelling and, and books and all of this stuff in literature um it's to see that moniker given to a group more or, or just to end not even a group but like a, a such a tiny tiny and very vocal subset of social media who are just looking for an opportunity to spew misogynist bullshit or hate speech of any of any variety um because it's just i guess an easier click you know or an easier you know title um is really really frustrating so let's call these people what they are and what they are is not fans that's not why they're complaining they're not complaining because they're fans they're complaining because they're sexist or they're they're um, they're racist or they're something or they're bigoted in general and they feel threatened. And that's why they're complaining, not because they have this pure love of a of a genre or a medium, because um, I would say a fan of comedy, a fan of Ghostbusters is not someone who's spewing hate as fan of pretty much anything is not somebody who's spewing hate so um that's sort of where i'm at with it and um i i look forward to to following up and reading the the piece by todd and reading that piece they mentioned by sam i have to go seek those out. i think those are excellent and i hope our listeners i would love to hear from you guys what you think about this topic as well but i feel like there's um there's this rush to 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 from certain sources to to lump in any reaction of a group of fans to something as the same and like you said the way we cover the way we interact with media has really changed the way that we cover it has really changed and um it's troubling to me to not see as much of a distinction in certain areas between those two things between these different very different you know what's what's motivating these very different reactions to different uh, projects so anyways that's thank you for indulging me and for sharing your thoughts noel no no not at all and i'll just reiterate the fact that I'm really excited about all female Ghostbusters and anyone who's not is Walter Peck. See, <laughs> I can do Ghostbuster references too. Come at me guys. <laughs> so you're, you're just a sniveling Reagan era EPA villain, which never made any sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, now we're going to, on that on that note, take a break yeah. and come back with our, our Weekend TV, kicking things off with a little reality and then our Weekend Comedy. So we'll be right back after this. If you want to love her, I'll do anything that you ask me to. And if you want another kind of love, I'll wear a mask for you. And if you want a partner, take my hand. Or if you want to strike me down in anger, then here I This week in reality and comedy, we're going to talk a bit about So You Think You Can Dance, the next generation's premiere, the LA auditions. Before we dive in with a full week in comedy, first up is the finale for Archer, Deadly Velvet Part 2. We'll talk a bit about the season as a whole. Uh, the, the Carmichael Show had its finale, President Trump. And uh, Noel caught up with The Detour, uh, which which also finished uh, its run this this week with The Track and The Beach. And I'll have thoughts, thoughts on that as well. Then we'll go over to a premiere, Maya and Marty, um, which, yeah, which debuted on NBC this week i'm going to talk briefly about veep oh, i love this title cut gate thank you thank you for that veep uh and then noel catch up with the ranch i'm going to catch up with catastrophe season two and we'll round out the the section by talking a little bit about lady dynamite season one we've had a chance to watch the first few episodes so we'll respond to that um at the end of the segment but first up is so you think you can dance the next generation now i've been very vocal um on the podcast about my love for so you think you can dance original recipe um <laughs> I was, you know, despite my frustrations with with Nigel, my frequent frustrations with Nigel and his uh, his homophobia, um, but uh, I was I'm mean, skeptical at the very least. Like, like, like that's the mildest way to put it about this next generation's season. Just the concept doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Um, Noel, what is your relationship with the series as a whole going into it, and what did you think about this premiere? Sure, um, I've never watched, so you think you can dance very consistently. Uh, my mother was a big fan when the show first started and for a number of seasons after that. So while I was living at home, I would catch um, like the seasons intermittently when I wasn't watching something else on my laptop. <laughs> um, but I always tend to, I always basically, as I do with most reality competition shows like that are structured like this, I tend to avoid the audition process because it's just mind-numbingly boring to me. Um, but I'll loop back in for the competition aspect, even though they put all the narrative groundwork for a lot of stuff during the audition process. But that being said, I just never found it all that interesting. Uh, so I don't think I've seen an episode of the show since I want to say that clip from season nine that they showed during this premiere looked really familiar to me. So that may have been the last time I watched anything. And how long ago was that? Uh, a few years, like three, maybe. Okay. So not, not, I probably haven't lapsed as long as I thought I've lapsed. Mm -hmm. um, but so the now getting back to the idea of them doing kids, my first initial reaction was, oh, this show's so cute that they think kids use Twitter. That's so adorable. Because <laughs> they don't. They don't. Um, 
they use Snapchat mm -hmm. and something else I probably haven't heard of because I'm old. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, but for like kids dancing and everything, my immediate response was, well, this is fine, I guess, if I like watching little kids dance, which I kind of do, but like not an excessively amount. And I'm not like um, one of the judges um, whose name I can't remember, the other gentleman that's on the panel this week. Jason um, Derulo. Yes. Um, when he's just like, I've never seen a little person dance like that. And I'm just like, why are you saying little person? Say child. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's fine if you haven't seen a child dance like that. You, no, most people probably haven't seen it, a child dance like this before. Um, but my other thing is that a lot of this also just feels like recital practice. And it's not a knock. It's just it's not up to the caliber of stuff and it feel that I know that the show has done in the past and can do. And it very much feels like Fox going, you know, master chef junior, that's really popular. What if we did that with our dancing show sold? We can all go home and get mimosas. And I feel like that's where this decision came from. And I was just, I mean, it's cute and it's charming and the little kids being cute and charming, but, I don't need to watch little kids dance. Yeah. Um, so as someone who watches the show um, much and has much stronger opinions about the show and its structure and Nigel, um, tell me how you felt about um, the next generation of the <laughs> So You Think You Can Dance. Dance, dance. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, So You Think You Can Dance has been on the cutting board uh in a significant way for the past two seasons. So last year they it like eked out a renewal and they did the stage versus street thing, hoping that would bring in more okay. people. And it did not. And this year it was even less likely that it would come back. So this next generation thing was like a last ditch desperate ploy to keep the show on the air and to get a renewal. So that's what's up with that. I, I'm, I'm confident that that master chef junior idea, like they, you're saying is exactly what allowed them to bring the show back. Um, Nigel Lithgow is passionate about the show. I mean, he's got plenty of money. He doesn't like, he's yeah. not making money on. So you think you can dance compared to his other, you know, the amounts of money that he has. <laughs> um, but he's passionate about dance, and so that's why he keeps trying to bring the show back in whatever way he can. Um, and fair enough. Uh, however, I uh, I wholeheartedly agree, Noel. Uh, the, the, the reason that I really enjoy So You Think You Can Dance, and I wrote a piece about this years ago, actually, is that I think um, what I've really loved about it is First of all, on the whole, it tends to be a much more diverse pool of of contestants than you see um, on other shows, on other specifically reality shows. But there's a lot more people of color. There's a lot. Um, obviously, you're not going to have a big range of body types because they're all, you know, trying to be professional dancers. But right. but just the difference of background, difference of, um, you know, from different parts of the country and everything, there tends to be a like when you look at just a picture of the the 19 I think to like 30 is the range age range they usually end up being a lot of them are like 18 19 20 sure. and then there'll be a handful that'll be in the higher end of things um but when you see a just a picture of the different casts on the shows over the past several years and then you look at the the cast of pretty much any teen set show um it just is really stark the contrast and I think it's a beautiful thing for for kids and teenagers and adults to be able to tune in and watch young people who have dedicated 
years of their life to to really excelling at something and to to showing what what people are capable of um and then to watching them grow over time i think it's great and on the whole so you think can dance doesn't usually waste our time in the audition process um making fun of people who shouldn't be there um every now and again they do and it really irritates me but on the whole they just they don't do that they don't waste their time they show they don't make fun of people and it tends to be a very good-hearted show however when i'm looking at uh the next generation what it feels like the show is going to have to fall into is the same issue i have when people share videos of young children playing amazing music or having great voices most of the time i don't care how much technique they have if they don't have access to the emotion that should be fueling art because that is what makes art interesting to me at a certain point it's like you can be dazzled by the technique and that'll that'll get you through i don't know a handful of episodes but without something else fueling that without a point of view and without an ability to access complex and challenging emotions or even to just to capture joy and and whimsy the way that that dance absolutely can it just becomes technique it just becomes physicality and I will marvel at that for a while and then I will turn off Ninja Warrior and then I will turn off the strongman competitions you know uh so if if I'm going to watch dance if I'm going to listen to music if I'm going to listen or to you know go to a, a gallery and look at paintings I want to feel an emotion and I want to connect to larger ideas and concepts. And a lot of the time, most of the time, I would say from what I have seen, what I have experienced, I don't care how great they are technically. Most young people haven't. And I would throw myself in there for hopefully at this point, I'm 30. Hopefully I've experienced some things, but most people have not. Young people have not experienced enough of the world to necessarily be able to channel that. And every now and again, you you, you see a young person who does, who is able to, to touch into larger emotions and is able to connect the years of intense physical study of something to a larger emotion, to what they're feeling. And then that can be amazing. But, I mean, the people, especially when you look at the classical dancers that you're going to see in something like this, like they had some ballerinas and some, you know, and when I think of this with violin all the time, we see these prodigies who have spent their childhoods locked in a room practicing. They're not going to be, they're not going to sound great on the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. I don't care if they can play technically because they cannot understand the suffering and the pain that went into the writing of that because they haven't experienced that yet. And thank goodness they haven't. And the same thing with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto um, and so many of the others. Um, and so I just, Kate I don't. calls it pro-children suffering to understand art well pro not expecting <laughs> not ex- pro not expecting people who haven't you know right. no, no, been just... through that to, to to be able to deliver what someone who is more seasoned in life is able to deliver the regular seasons of the, so you think you can dance frequently um there will be one or two older members of the team and almost always uh who, who like make it through the top 20 and almost always i'm like oh thank goodness there's an actual actual man and an actual woman up there with those boys and girls and yeah. that's something that i experience in most seasons so you think you can dance the emotional maturity of a handful of the people really shines through compared to the very talented and very promising but not you know still developing emotionally and everything uh, dancers around them that's gonna be times a hundred with 13 to 16 year olds or whatever this is i don't know what do you th- what do you think about this 
No, I think it's a really good point. And while you were talking and discussing that particular aspect of your critique of the premiere, was my immediate thought went to a lot of the auditions that we saw veered away, veered. We had one ballerina, and it, she was good, I thought. Yeah. Um, but I'm also not able to really judge that because I don't have a metric for classical dance because I don't know anything about it. I can base it on other things, but it's just like, it looked good to me, <laughs> the guy who doesn't know anything about this. It looked fine, I guess. Mm-hmm. But stuff like that or stuff like um, the contemporary dancing that we only saw kind of clips of every now and then. And then we saw like one, I think, extended contemporary themed audition. Um, was that both of those, especially contemporary, when I've watched it at the competition stage within um, this show, uh, requires an intense amount of storytelling through dance and an intense amount of emotion through dance that is never based in fun and joy. Not to say that contemporary dance or classical dance can't be fun and joyful, but most of the representations I've seen on the show have steered away from that. Mm-hmm. And um, to that end, so stuff like really fast um, ballroom dance or tap dancing or other forms of dance that emphasize joy and fun and that sort of thing came alive much more. But these are emotions that kids have very immediate access to. They don't need a narrative. It's just, I get to perform and this is fun and I get to do this and this is fun. And that's great. So like uh, doing some hip hop, doing some roboting um, and doing some tap and everything. The tap dancer was actually really good. I really liked her performance quite a bit. Yeah, I agree. But they're, like you said, the the emotion required for that compared to something like contemporary or classical or even certain types of ballroom are going to be significantly different. Yeah. Well, let's talk for a moment about some certain types of ballroom. Are you looking forward to the, the you know, when they have to do the cha-cha and we're like, oh, look, there's a bunch of 13 and 14 year olds let's, uh, doing a dance that should be inherently sexual? Well, let's talk about the fact that he had his mom, one of the contestants had his mom help. Yeah. And I just went, no, well, that's, how does, that's yeah. kind of weird. So what are we, I mean, I feel like you can't help but be weird. If it's not weird, then you're, you know, like, if, the way to not make it weird is to focus on the technique, which is great. Yeah. But yes. it's supposed to be hot. That's the point. That's the point right. of, of so many of the Latin ballrooms. If I've learned anything from watching, watching a ton of Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> I know things are when things are supposed to be saucy. So it's like either <laughs> let's sexualize the preteens and the tween yeah. or like or the teenagers, um, and let's have the creepy older you know old guy being like that was super sexy when you were when you were doing all of this dance, or we're castrating it. What should be like the defining like emotion of that dance style and just watching feet move quickly. I mean, yeah, there's not a win with this. Yeah. No, there isn't. And I mean, when he said, oh, my mom's going to help him. She's like, kid, just find someone else who's auditioning. Yeah. And that, that that's happened before on this show. I know it's happened before that people have like paired up for an audition process because their partner couldn't make it for some reason. And they found someone waiting in that massive line. I also just don't think it's cute when they do show the, the, the tweens dancing and the tween guy is like, 
staring at the tween girl's butt and the chick, you know, turning out and being like, hey, smile and nod to the audience. I'm like, I don't think that's cute or funny the way that apparently everybody else does. I think that's weird and a terrible way to be like socializing a young person to relate to sexuality. You know, I feel like that's just really creepy. And why don't we not do this anyway so i i'm not gonna i'm not planning to watch more of so you think you can oh, dance. What, goodness. oh yeah no certainly i would not expect you to uh no no the the only thing that i will say that i enjoyed is cat dealey is gonna make a great house mom oh <laughs> oh yeah no she's wonderful cat dealey is the best one of the most underrated hosts on television not only like her interactions with the kids were really funny but that woman can pull off a sergeant pepper jacket oh yeah she looks and I'm just amazing. Like, That's fantastic. Because no one else no. could wear that jacket and make that work. Mm-hmm. But she could. And I mean, she was always like pretty much my favorite thing about this show when I was watching it. Because she's wonderful and really, really delightful. But she was just really like upping her game interacting with the kids. Mm-hmm. Just her glee at having another yes. woman there of a similar height to her. I, yes, that was so great. <laughs> That was pretty wonderful. That was pretty wonderful. Well, um, any final thoughts on So You Think You Can Dance? It looks like we'll have a, well, I mean, the next couple of weeks you're going to be on assignment, but uh, yes. well, it sounds like we're going to have a summer pretty free of reality television here on the Maybe, we, maybe we can check back in after they start the mentoring competition process and see how that goes. Have they done mentors on the show before? Uh, no, not really. Okay. So they, okay. I'm not, I'm, we'll see how the Academy portion thing yeah. goes. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not very... I'm just not very interested, I gotta say. That's fair. Yeah, we'll see. Well, now let's move on to our week in, in comedy. We're gonna kick things off with the Archer finale, Deadly Velvet Part 2. Uh, how'd you feel about the way this brought things full circle and uh, the, the, the whole cyborg thing and the ending where we sort of began with the Sunset Boulevard reference? What, how did you feel about Archer PI, for lack of a better word? Well, when we came in to... We haven't talked about the show since, like, the week before it premiered when we discussed, like, the first four episodes in very broad ways and discussed Mm -hmm. the settings as this private investigation turned into L.A. thing. And we were all four, all four, we were both very keen on the ideas and those first four episodes uh, for the most part. And then after that, I just went, oh, okay, this was fine was kind of ended up being my reaction to a lot of this. Um, I felt like they didn't really exploit the private investigator stuff as much as I was anticipating that they were going to do. And it just felt like they were just doing ISIS again. And there wasn't any real shift in dynamics of like Cyril ostensibly being in charge was never actually a thing. It just kept being a butt of a joke that he just kept shouting the figures agency and it never went and then, basically. And I just went, well, this is, this is, you're squandering a lot of potential and a lot of really interesting stuff. And so the office stuff just never really gelled into anything different from what they had done before, which I squandered, again, a lot of stuff for me. Um, and then the more serialized stuff regarding uh, the sex tape and then it feeding into this insurance scam slash other insurance scam... Um, was the kind of convoluted private eye type of narrative that I really enjoy, but it just ended up feeling really rushed in the last two episodes for me. And I just, 
I never tapped into it as much as I tapped into those last four episodes. So then circling back to the Sunset Boulevard and then all the cyborg stuff and then playing at being actors on a Hollywood set and the kind of maybe interesting meta stuff that they could have done with that just never went anywhere for me. And I just ended up going, well, this was all fine. It was good. It was Archer, but it just never felt at like a different level in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. that I think really frustrated me more than anything else. Um, how did you feel about this then? I think I'm more positive on it than you were sure. wound up at the end of the season. Uh, I, I was really enjoying each episode sort of just on a not enough to feel like I had to talk about it on the podcast right nothing, yeah nothing new or groundbreaking but I was having a lot of fun with most of the episodes this season I do think though that the the overall uh like the thread the arc all the Veronica Dean stuff and the the Patton Oswalt character and these are I think that didn't deliver the way that it needed to yeah. um so while it works on a thematic level of when you watch those noirs uh those right. old Hollywood noirs and like it's incredibly convoluted and it actually doesn't really make any sense and you get to the end of the story you're like wait but how about like that okay thematically it works but you know what would be better if it was really good <laughs> and yeah. also like I can take the convoluted if it's satisfying and interesting right. in it's own the, right it's it's the big sleep I mean the big sleep makes absolutely no sense but it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> yes it's really good because <laughs> I would say the best parts of the season were the parts that didn't involve the Veronica yes. Dean stuff and yeah. so I just I, I think they could have stuck the landing with that better and then I would have been um I think overall I think they I, I think it was a solid, a very strong season considering they're on season seven of yeah. a comedy. I mean, they, you know, they were finding new things to do with the, some, some new things to do with the characters while still making them feel very much of, uh, you know, very, very organic and very much like who these people are. Um, but like this, the extended uh, fights between Lana and Archer just at a certain point got, um, got a bit old. It's like, why are we still, why yeah. are they still fighting about this? feels like they're still fighting about this just to, fuel the next few uh episodes but that's about it so it would have been it would have been nice to see um to see a little more creativity maybe with it but on the whole like i said i i am positive on the season i had a lot of fun with it and uh <laughs> the way that it ends is very interesting yeah how how do you think that they're writing themselves out of that corner there's another archibot. cyborg, right? Is that is that that it? Okay. I mean, I feel like that's the easiest way to do it because right. I mean, you know, there's like a bajillion uh, Krieger cyborg, so why couldn't there be more? <laughs> yeah, and that's fair, and that's probably how they are going to wrap this up, which will be, I mean, or the only way. he'll be yeah. dead and be a cyborg from now on, which would which would lead to a humorous things for a couple of episodes because he hates cyborgs which mm -hmm. never really came up in this episode which was kind of frustrating his fear of cyborgs just disappears yeah he's not afraid of himself as a cyborg that's true that's true but i mean yeah but he was even frustrated with his cyborg girlfriend sometimes yeah so. that's true that's true yeah. uh do you have any final thoughts on archer no i mean i'll still watch it next season i was just kind of disappointed that they just didn't do more with the detective noir stuff 
Okay. But that was just me. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, we'll see if they if they you know, have a completely new uh, season eight or if they continue this idea in the next season and the setting. But like you know, I, I look forward to the next season. And again, like I said, they're still going strong in season seven, even if it's not my favorite of of Archer's various seasons. Um, the Carmichael Show also had its finale. President Trump. Um, I I really enjoyed this episode. I, I think that they didn't. I like that they didn't even bother trying to give. Um, Gerard's dad a legitimate reason for supporting Trump they just they didn't even bother because like they're like that doesn't matter what matters because there's also not a legitimate reason well (laughs) I would agree with you but like that's I like that the discussion they're having is not really about the politics of it but of the responding to people's responses to yeah And, and that's a much more interesting conversation I think personally for for this for this show to to get into what did what did you think uh, I liked the episode overall. Um, I was really much more engaged by um, the marriage subplot yeah. in the episode, much more than I was in the political discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kept trying to figure out how they were marrying the two plots together, um, mm-hmm. but couldn't quite like figure it out. And I thought maybe it just was something about inertia and change and I don't know. I think I'd have to watch the episode a couple more times than I had time to do to maybe latch on to something. But I enjoyed just the kind of casualness of it all. His proposal, her kind of just understanding acceptance that this is kind of how both of us work in a lot of ways, which I think was really good. But for the political stuff, it was fine. It wasn't like as bitingly satiric as I was in as I was expecting it to be, um, considering the subject matter. But like you, I agree that not giving um, his dad like a definitive reason, just, yeah, this guy makes sense. And I met him. And it was just like, that. no, that works for me. I'm okay with that. It's very much an Aaron Burr, and you can grab a beer with him sort of situation. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it, it, it was fine. Um, I don't need big fireworks for like a finale from the Carmichael show or anything like that because it's the Carmichael show. I just need solid topical commentary and I got that. So I was fine. Well, and I also just like this idea, um, which matches with my personal experience and the personal experience of my extended family. Uh, my, my mom is a substitute teacher and was very surprised to discover uh, there were other teachers and school employees that were Trump supporters, which exploded her brain. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, exploded her brain is a good way to, to put it. But it's not like there's some secret reason that people are supporting Trump or Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton that we don't already know. It's not like there's some, yeah. oh, well, everybody's talking about these three things, but really it's actually there's another thing that is under, like, it's like, no, it's the reasons that people, like, at a certain point when people say stuff, take them at their word. Yeah. And, um, and they just disagree with you and that's okay. Um, 
unless you're Maxine. <laughs> so yes, and, and the show like engaging with that, I think is is a great way to do it. I also really, I mean, just feel so much more in tune with a lot of people's, not mine, but a lot of people's response to politics. Of yeah, I feel strongly about Trump, but not so strongly that I want to have to mow the lawn. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> which which again, so I, it felt more relatable. And and like like you, I also enjoyed the subplot about the the marriage and the proposal. Um, and I liked that the show didn't really focus on why Gerard had been stabbed breaking up a fight they didn't say who had stabbed him or anything like that and i thought that was again focusing on what the actual point of the, yeah. the episode was and, and I, I actually really enjoyed that so it's been a strong second season for the carmichael show and i just um i was listening to um Sorry, I've been going through some of the back catalog. I think it's the Vulture TV podcast, and they they had Gerard Carmichael on it. Just talking about even just the way that they filmed the show is very different um, than a lot of shows where they they do like a a taping that's like a run, and then they do a separate taping that's a run instead of keeping the same audience there and doing each scene several times the way that apparently other shows do it. Um, yeah. And I and so I've been more attuned to the interaction with the audience since I've been watching in the past few episodes, and I think that's really interesting as well. Like, the, the feel of the show is something that I really appreciate. I don't want most of television to be that, but I like that the Carmichael feel, show feels distinct, and I'm very glad it's coming back for season three. Me too. Yeah. Um, our last uh, finale this week is the detour, which I've been I've been enjoying and mentioning every now and again, but certainly not. You never uh, told me it was so good, Kate. Yeah. Why did you not tell me anything about this show? I did. <laughs> I, when it started, we talked about it every now and again. I mention it. But this week we had the track and the beach and you caught up with the show. When you said you were yes. marathoning it, I, I was actually felt bad because I felt like you were watching because you felt like you had to as homework for the the podcast because I was going to be talking about the finale. So I'm glad that you were really enjoying it. What made no, you decide it, to stream, like to marathon it all? Uh, it was because I didn't have a TV for three days. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah, I, I didn't have a TV for three days. Um, and so was, my TV was in a box um, um, since Saturday until I got another TV on to Wednesday. So I didn't have a television set, um, mm. which... Thanks for ruining person. No. <laughs> um, so, so I was just like, I need to entertain myself somehow. And I was going to watch um, the detour on my computer, my lap, one of the laptops I kept. But for whatever reason, videos never load. So I downloaded the TBS app and I was able to watch everything on my um, Kindle. And it was really, really good, Kate. I laughed a lot. Um, I really enjoyed um, just how... And you and I discussed this a little bit offline and my difference of basically watching all of it at once versus mm -hmm. you doing it week to week. And my appreciation of it being very much in the steady escalation of the situations. It hits a lot harder because I'm watching it all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, but also just stuff like character arcs, like their marriage is so fascinating to me and i really appreciated how we got that two-part episode with um tom amandy's just killing it um <laughs> as a pedophilic um southern doctor and um that two-parter and what marriage is and what a relationship is and then the very next episode is the two of them discussing their relationship with their kids during a traffic jam and I just loved how that was really structured. And I enjoyed like the steady way that they kept making everyone kind of weird. And, but just 
just extreme enough and just weird enough without going like too overboard because they're responding to all these really other weird, bizarre situations. So it, it felt really funny. Natalie Z is just amazing on this Isn't show. She's so good. It's she's wonderful to so see her get great. material worthy of her. Right. No, it's so good. Like I was just went, wow. And I love justified. And I'm just like, Justified never gave her enough credit. Even like in episodes where I was just like, she's really good in this. I never felt like the show really gave her enough credit. Mm-hmm. And then it took a half hour TBS sitcom to give her enough credit. And I'm just like, that was really good. And then I'm just like, Kate, next season, imagine all the credit that they can give her because of that cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, there's a so, lot of potential for next season, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm I really enjoy just a lot of all of this really um even like their lampooning of the conquistadors restaurant (laughs) (laughs) yeah was really solid um and it was just really sharp um humor and you like you mentioned um last week with the um christmas town episode and the gun guy um you can very clearly see uh jason jones and samantha b's sensibilities even in episodes that they didn't write but you can definitely see in the episodes that they did write um because Jones wrote the um, episode uh, about their about the married couple's relationship, and it comes through his sensibility comes through really really clear in that episode. Um, so I enjoyed it as a whole, and I was really glad that you discussed it enough and mentioned watching it on the TBS app at some point, so I could go. I'm never going to get to see this, and I was, but they have an app. <laughs> uh, so as someone who actually isn't a Johnny come lately to the show. <laughs> Uh, what do you think about the finale? Uh, I thought the finale episodes were both kind of meh for the most mm-hmm. part um, compared to what had come before, though. I enjoy the upending of the big uh, I'm going to expose this corporate corruption. Mm-hmm. And it ended up not being corporate corruption at all. The things were, in fact, intended for doorknobs. <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah, I thought that that built really well. And, and yeah. I had mentioned that earlier in the season when it was revealed to be hand sanitizer. Yeah. Uh, it, and and I, again, I, I really think they paced out the that storyline through the 10 episodes very well. Um, it was a little convoluted from time to time, um, but it was funny enough that you didn't necessarily mind that we were getting away from the, what should theoretically be the through line. Uh, and, and yeah, I think it, you know, I, I think it was a, a really fun, very light, uh, but well made first season. Yep. And I am not surprised that, I mean, cause I, I liked it a lot, but it sounds like you, you really connected with it. And I'm not surprised that it is more effective and more, lasting with you as an audience member when you marathon it because you can yeah. see some of that more structural um the, the structural components and the way that it builds and, and the character development as well um this for me really feels like um uh, I, w- I would compare this to something like playing house sure where it's just like like it's a perfect kind of summer show that yeah. does a lot of, like that does what it's doing really well yeah. And that not enough people are talking about. I think it's a yeah. really great fit for TBS and, and hopefully more people will check it out. But it certainly like it made a little bit of a splash when it premiered. Yeah. But I think because of peak TV, people got away from it. People weren't watching it uh, week to week. And I, I you know, I, I do think it would it is the kind of show that that if you have a long weekend like you, if you're st- yeah. <laughs> your TV's not working, you're stuck watching something on an app or whatever, like sit down and watch the detour because yeah. 
again, I I keep going to Natalie Z just because I've been a fan of hers so good for so long, and it's wonderful to see her here. But but I think those the kids are really good. The yes, way that they, they are the way that they pay off that conquistador armor thing in the last episode. Yes, traveling was great. Um, uh, there's just a lot. I mean, and then the phone thing with the daughter and everything, and in the yeah. end also worked really well. It was just. You know, like some some elements, I think don't necessarily aren't as as elegant as maybe I was I would like is like the the meta police station stuff. Yeah, the true detective riffing. Yeah, not was, as great. This never really worked, and I kept being confused by the fact that he had a beard all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. So that's apparently and the I, later. I just didn't understand where the timeline for this was happening. Yeah. But even we might after, get the answer in season Right, eight. even after, like, we saw them push the car over the cliff for the insurance, which I thought was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> Though, now that you mention that, that might be a very intentional thing. Right. No, it probably so, it was a very intentional thing. That we'll see pay off in season two. But, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, there's a lot of potential with where they could go. And, and it's just, it's a fun... It's a, like you said, it's a show with a point of view, with yeah. interesting characters, good performances, and I think you could go. There's a lot. There's a lot of shows that wish they were as solid in their first season as the Detour. And I think one of the other things, and we've kind of talked about this, um, like end of the year type stuff. But I, one of the things I really globbed onto with this was just the perfect balance of crude honesty that mm-hmm. they had with both them with the with the with the parents as both when they were alone but also when they were interacting with the kids both felt very authentic and true to each character without feeling like oh yeah it's just it just it felt very much like these are how parents talk when their kids are out of earshots yeah and i really like that it was just like we love my ass. I do. Right. And that kind of stuff. It's just like, it's yeah. really good. And even though their kids are right there, the kids aren't paying attention. So it's just, it felt really, it felt really grounded in something that felt authentic and real. Yeah. Uh, and I really appreciated that because it made everything funnier. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I, like, it's something like, uh, like I would connect to something like Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah. Like the dynamics of the family just feel... Like you can, you under, you can, see, you see this family, you recognize this family, and you understand this yeah. family right away. And I think they hold true to that throughout. I think that's an excellent point. Um, well, our next show, uh, we're actually going to be a little divided on, I think, and that's okay. Maya and Marty, which had its premiere. It's an hour-long variety show on NBC, and um, I, t- I was messaging you while I was watching it. I was watching this on a treadmill uh, because I was I was getting my steps for the day and they were testing me because this show, this premiere, it starts out really bad, guys. It's really bad. But for me, it actually got a lot better by the end of the show. Um, and I can actually point to the scene where the sketch where it started to turn it around. But I wound up actually kind of really liking this one. I don't know if it's enough for me to, to keep me on board to seek it out ahead of time, but um, from Jiminy Glick on, I actually really started to actively enjoy this premiere, whereas in the first couple sketches, certainly the second and third sketch, I was just like ready to pull my... It was actually making my time on the treadmill go by slower 
which is, is exactly not, yeah it's the opposite yeah, of what you want on a treadmill it's the opposite of what you want on a treadmill uh what how did you feel about maya and marty because like if, when i was first talking to you i was like this is terrible <laughs> um so and we were kind of commiserating about it a, a little bit um so i don't know where where do you fall on the spectrum between my initial reaction and then my by the end reaction i'm probably like in between your spectrum a little bit um i i was i was more fascinated um by maya and marty than i necessarily enjoyed it um in part because this is very much like the pilot program for integrating ads and sponsors into saturday night live because i mean that first sketch with um tom hanks has a chicago fire at integration Mm-hmm. A Burger King integration, and I think one other product that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I was just like, "This is this is what Saturday Night Live is going to be next season." Everyone is this show, um, and then I got really concerned when the second sketch was basically an advertisement for Little Big Shots, and not a very funny advertisement for Little Big Shots. A painfully unfunny. Yeah, no, it's a it's aggressively not funny. Yeah, it's really bad. And then Jiminy Glick showed up, and I went, oh no, they got so desperate, they had to bring in Jiminy Glick. See, but Uh, I like Jiminy Glick. And I'm okay with Jiminy Glick, but it felt like a very, it felt like a very desperate thing to do in the first Mm -hmm. episode to me. Mm -hmm. And, but then, wisely, their first guest is Larry David. (laughs) And we discussed this, it's just like, Larry David's someone who just refuses to deal with the artifice of anything, which is why he has the best episode of The Marriage Ref. Yes, I remember his episode of The Marriage Ref, everyone, because it's amazing. (laughs) You can watch it on YouTube. I beg you to go watch it because it's amazing because he refuses to put up with it. Um, But he just, he narrows in on just keep pushing to see how far Short's commitment to playing this really terrible human being is. And it becomes funnier and funnier and funnier. And it's probably the best thing in the entire episode for me because it's very much grounded in, in an and-then type of situation, which is something I can't say for the rest of the sketches um, mm-hmm. because they never really escalated in an interesting way. And that one kept escalating in really interesting ways because of Larry David. And his just his joy at not, at not seeing short break just kept making it funnier. Um, the only other thing I really, really enjoyed was the uh, Miley Cyrus musical number was actually really, really good. Um, the whole Marlene Dietrich um, androgyny kind of stuff, both with her costuming, but also with the song choice of um, the Leonard Cohen song and then the standard um, was just really nicely executed. I thought even if it's a little on the nose, um, but it was good. It was like the kind of a jolt of energy. I think the episode really needed right there and then. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. But the rest of it, I just went, oh, these letters to the Civil War wife are not that funny. And oh, I thought that sketch was super entertaining. And then the edible diamonds never went no. anywhere. And not never... good. Way too long. Way too long, and also not timely enough with a Mrs. Ted Cruz joke. Mm-hmm. I was like, so this entire sketch is we're going to make fun of someone who speaks differently. Right. That's it. I mean, I enjoy Maya Rudolph doing ridiculous accents as much as the next person because she does them very well. 
but it wasn't very funny. And then the closing sketch with the bunnies and the goodnight moon. I mean, as a premise, it's funny, but I kept waiting for some sort of explanation of why they're rabbits. <laughs> and it Aren't never they in, in Good Mi- Goodnight Moon? They're rabbits, right? Are they? I that was uh, that's what I was going with. That that may be the case, but then I didn't understand why they were parting rabbits. <laughs> I didn't understand it, and I kept waiting for some sort of weird David Lynch reference, and it never happened. And yes, that was an in, in, Inland Empire joke. Um, but I just I, I it was it was fun. But um, I'll tune in next week because they've got Steve Martin and Tina Fey um, as guest stars, and that plus Martin Short can't not be good. But then watch them prove me wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. The um, for me, the the Civil War letter thing, I thought was really funny. So like that, that really worked for me because of just like this idea. We all have somebody that we've talked to where they just glaze right over the interesting stuff and tell you the least. In, you know, like it's it's basically the yada 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 episode of Seinfeld. Only imagine if every time you're like try, like texting with the person there's like a two week delay as you get an old timey letter <laughs> through the battle lines back and forth like for me that really worked um but fair enough i can see uh how 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 that way if, if you didn't connect with the premise that was going to yeah. be a long sketch uh, i also really enjoyed the jimmy glick one just because like you're saying because for me, it was more about a like a battle of wills as Larry David is just like trying to get Martin Short to break and trying to push the conversation to a place where he can't in character respond in a way that'll yeah. make sense. And then just watching Martin Short just keep circling back around. Um, so watching the two of them kind of uh, cat and mouse a little bit there was really fun. And it made me want to see a commitment off with yeah. Fred Armisen, another of the most comedic, like committed comedic actors God. out there or improvised out there with Martin Short, I think would just be fascinating. Uh, but, but no watching like, He's like, I'm going to just try for personal insults. It's like, well, I'm going to go on to anti-Semitism, but in character. Yeah. <laughs> like, watching. That was just, for me, it was really fun. And the other thing I'll, I'll, like, I was really, temp- like, really uh, intrigued by is the notion of this as a venue to see, like, Broadway performers and shows. Yeah. Like, ha- which Which they had a little bit with Shuffle Along, which I think didn't work as well as it could have. It, it, was, it was show-stopping in a bad way. <laughs> oh, see, I really liked it, but but I don't yeah. think it was as, I mean, I think it was a number that didn't work as well out of the context of the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, of the Broadway show as others would. So, like, technically, the I was really appreciating the dancing, um, but I think that just if, if it had been a number that also had, like, a melody, <laughs> that yes. would have helped the, you know, t- when taking out of context. But, um but yeah, I agree. Miley Cyrus was fantastic. Uh, I, I, th- I thought, you know, getting to hear some, I really appreciated how low her register is. Yeah, it's much lower than I thought it was, but I also don't listen to a lot of Miley Cyrus. So, yeah. yeah. I also just, the idea of Goodnight Moon being that the person saying it has OCD. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like a really lovely concept to me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it, it was a rough start because that little big shot sketch was terrible. Oh, um, God, so the bad. opening was okay. I thought it was solid, but the next one was horrible. Uh, but then for me, it really improved by the end. And I don't know. I kind of would like to see it succeed. I don't know if I wasn't planning to tune in, but if you're, if you're tuning in, I'll watch the next episode. We can. Yeah, no, back. I'm definitely coming in next week. Um, in part because I mean, 
Steve Martin showing up at the beginning of this, just saying, I can't come on your show this week because I'm in Europe. is such an absurdist little bit of business. And it's then he very just Steve walks. Martin. It's very Steve Martin. I've re- and I really love Steve Martin. Um, so I'm definitely game for that. Uh, so no, I'll definitely tune in for next week's episode. Okay. Well then that takes us, uh, we're done with finales, we're done with premieres. So we're going to quickly go through a few others. I have to mention Veep because I'm sorry, it's called Gate. It's hilarious. I, uh, I have my review up at the AV club. I'm going to keep this very brief because we are running long, of course. Um, but, uh, but I thought all like, uh, and I mentioned this in my review, a different show would have been completely content with the Jonah running for Congress storyline, which was really fun. Or the Selena has to decide if she's going to do a bank bailout of her boyfriend's company or a different company. Because her boyfriend's company is the one that they should, that any economist would tell you that they should bail out. But if if she does, then people will criticize her for bailing out her boyfriend's bank. So which should she do? The one that's better for the country um, and yay, it'll help her boyfriend or the one that will will not tank her political career. Watching her dither between those two uh, options. And of course, she's not she's like the fact that it's the best thing for the country is she's glad. But that's the only reason why she's wanting to do it. Um, that's another show would have been happy with just those two storylines. But this episode also has um, see Selena task Amy with finding out which staffer has been overheard by um, a reporter referencing the POTUS as the C word. Um, and so her, you know, investigating that and as the people and uh, she, Selena fires some, some low level staffers and, and you eventually find out that of course, every member of her staff has called her the C word, including Gary. And he thinks the C word is crone, um, which is just <laughs> adorable. Um, but like, it was just, it was delightful. And so it's just such a wonderful way for the show to address the specific challenges of being, um, the first female president. Cause there's, there's no word that is equivalent when directed at men yeah. to when it's directed at women. I mean, there's, there isn't a word. And, yeah. and so to using that and the show's relationship with this word and the character's relationship with this word. This is not a show afraid to bust out the C word at all. Uh, often to delightful comedic effect earlier in the season. <laughs> um, the Selena called the queen of England. a c- um, So uh, having using that word and using like examining the show's relationship with that word and Selena's relationship with that word to, you know, further its discussion over the course of the season of what her specific position is and, um, and the, you know, and I thought I thought it was really great, and it was it was really funny, but it was also really, um, really thoughtful in the same in the same sense. So so I just tip of the hat to Veep. Well done, well done, Veep. Thank you for that. I got to write like almost five hundred words about the c word on Veep. This week, like that's a gift. That is a gift to a that TV is, reviewer. Yeah, no, and it's a gift for anyone, I think, to be able to do that. So that no, it's yeah. really great. It was it was a good week for me. Um, you caught up with the ranch this yes. week. We had talked about that um, the, when the when it first debuted. You had seen the first couple. What did you think of the whole se- whole season? It roughly stays in the same gear as the first season does. So it has this kind of weird sitcommy type of stuff happening, and then this undercurrent of fairly dramatic stuff happening at the same time. Um, and it doesn't 
it does a better job as it progresses of making those two things contrast with one another as opposed to just feel like two separate shows, which is what my concern was, is like the Danny Masterson and Ashton Kutcher stuff was going to feel very much like a different show. And then Deborah Winger and Sam Elliott stuff was going to feel very much like a different show. And they just were two things that were happening at the same time that occasionally intersected with one another. And then the show, and I'm not quite sure when this happened. Um, I think it happened around episode three or four. Um, that they figured out a way to make a lot of the Ashton Kutcher romance stuff with his 22-year-old girlfriend. Mm. Yeah, well, here's there's a heavy amount of commentary on it actually throughout the episode, throughout the series, of uh, people okay. making fun of him about it, um, kind of lightly judging him for it, um, especially from the Eliza, um, Alicia, Alicia, Eliza, Alicia, Alicia Cuthbert character. Um, Cuthbert uh, character uh, is constantly needling him about it. Like, constantly. It's pretty much half of her dialogue after, like, episode five. Um, and so what they ended up finding was ways to explore him dealing with being in a similar type of relationship that his parents are in where they're married, but they're basically just getting together to have sex with one another because they can't stand living with one another because of larger emotional things that they both aren't, that one of them needs and the other one isn't willing to give. And they find a way to make those feel thematically complementary. And it, it doesn't elevate the show too much higher than what it's operating in, but it's, it's much smarter than I think I was initially giving it credit for. And it's a little bit funnier than I was initially giving it credit for. And naturally, Sam Elliott and Deborah Winger are both just fantastic on this when they're required to both be funny, but also to be really serious. Because um, Sam Elliott just delivers dry one-liners like he's just talking. Um, but then the larger, more dramatic stuff that he needs to play with Deborah Winger is still really, really sharp. And I've never really seen Elliot do, like, really straight drama before. I've seen him do, like, drama, but not, like, straight emotional-based relationship type of drama before. And he's really, really good. Um, so I enjoyed The Ranch. I'd actually, like, more heartily recommend it, I think, than I did uh, when the first ten episodes dropped. And, yeah, it was just really fascinating. The last thing I'll say is that despite the lack of... Um, racial diversity um, within, well, even within the extras on the show. Uh, the representation of basically barely, barely scraping by class of Americans who basically their income comes from ranchers, ranching and cattle, selling cattle, which becomes a plot issue within the last like four episodes of whether or not they can make ends meet and how that's going to work. Um, is really interesting and really compelling to watch them navigate how to deal with that and what they can do to deal with that. And it's something you don't necessarily see a lot. So it feels very much like a hearkening back to the more rural sitcoms that uh, used to be very popular on television prior to like the MTM type stuff. And then, but still mirroring a lot of more 1980s comedic um, sitcom sensibilities. And so it's a very weird hybrid that ends up working better than it probably should. And I'd encourage people to watch it. 
did the uh, live studio audience with the profanity get any less weird? No, it was uh, it was still kind of weird. Um, but the, they dole it out appropriately enough that it's not like near constant. Um, but yeah, but it's also a guaranteed laugh line, which I think is why they kind of maybe kept doing it because they saw that it was a guaranteed laugh line anytime Sam Elliott says fuck. And to be fair, I laughed every time Sam Elliott said fuck. So there you go. So I'm not I'm I'm not helping their case. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, that's intriguing. I'll have to see if I can find some time for it. Uh, I did find time this week for Catastrophe season two, and it's so good, y'all. Like, you know, the the Mo Ryan and Ryan McGee over at Talking TV with Ryan Ryan have been singing the praises of this uh, second season since it uh, dropped, and I've been meaning to catch it back up. That I really like season one. And I watched all of the second season in a day because I didn't have work that day. So I so I start, watched the first episode and went, oh, it is really, really good. And then as soon as I was able, I watched the rest of the season that same day. Um, the It's just it's really funny, but it's also a different it's sort of like you're saying with the detour, like the, the relationship that these characters have is so specific to them. And it's a kind of relationship you don't often see in in um, in, in sitcoms. I would connect it more with something like You're the Worst with Gretchen and uh, Jimmy. But um, the. It just feels so mature. It's just nice to see adults interacting. And they, they, they're they married and they love each other and they have a really strong bond. They have kids together, but they also irritate the crap out of each other. And they also, you know, have uh, more complicated, you know, issues around their families and everything. But they're trying to their best and they're trying to make everything work and they, they care about each other. And when they screw things up, they do try to... You know, it might take them a while, but they eventually do try to fix it. Um, I, I had a little trouble with, uh, by the end of the season, the the level of escalation when Sharon finds out um, about trouble that Rob has had at work felt a bit too much. I, like, I, don't, I don't think they earned her reaction. Um, so that's that felt a little contrived to me, but um, certainly like I it, the season sort of ends on a cliffhanger a little bit like um is one character going to one character finds something out that the other character hasn't told them and it ends with like a character about to speak and are they going to bring this up or are they going to change the topic you know kind of a thing um and i was like oh i need the next season now i need it now and who knows when it'll go come out but um yeah the character development and the writing and like the world of this show is one that I just love spending time in and so I know you haven't seen season one either Noel but if that that's another one that you can stream so if you're looking for shows in the next couple of weeks that you can just hit up on Amazon go go with Catastrophe because it's so good yeah I almost thought about it uh given that you were we had discussed like catching up with it but then i just watched all of grace and frankie season two instead (laughs) fair enough enough. well and talking about catching up with things we also both watched some lady dynamite now you had seen the first two i've seen the first three of season one um i imagine i will in the next couple weeks catch up with the rest of it um uh, just based on on some of our our guest co-hosts that we'll be having in the next couple weeks you guys have to tune in uh to see who those will be but um what what did you think about these these first two and and about the show as a whole um it's 
the first episode is the one that sticks with me the most just because it's it's very self-consciously premacy mm -hmm. um like aggressively like commenting on being premacy um so it, it stuck with me a lot in that regard uh but it's a very meta aware type of sitcom and we see glimmers of that because i watched half of the third episode this morning and then just uh didn't get back to it when i got home uh, which wasn't a comment on the show, but more a comment about where my brain was after I got off work today. Um, that I, was, but I could already see like within that third episode, and you can speak to this a little bit more um, about them being very much aware about the tropes of a sitcom and being aware of like certain things like social responsibility and representation and that sort of thing, and how what the value of television is in addressing these issues and how well they can actually change anything, if they can change anything at all. And I think that there's elements of that within the first episode when they're talking about her mental health in particular and whether or not like them talking about it changes anything and what it means for her to be out of uh, a uh, outpatient, basically an outpatient um, mental health um, program. So a lot of it's funny and but it's it aggressively required my attention, which is fine. It just I was have not been in the space with everything else I have going on to watch a show that aggressively requires my attention. And which is again why I watched The Ranch and Grace and Frankie. And the uh, detour. And, and yeah. the detour. I mean, these are three shows that aggress did not require as much attention to appreciate what they were doing. Um, whereas Lady Dynamite's significantly more subtle in what it's trying to do, which I appreciate. Um, and that's kind of what I can say about it based on three episodes, that I like it. I like its sensibilities. Um, I like it if it steers a little bit away from being less meta, like them breaking constantly in the first episode with Patton Oswalt saying, no, no, you can't do stand-up in your show. Everyone does that. Don't do that. And even yeah. if I even if I enjoyed Mul John Mulaney showing up <laughs> to discuss that maybe that really isn't a good idea because look how badly my sitcom bombed, but it, it just it was too aggressively meta. Mm -hmm. So when they scaled that back in the second episode and again a little bit in the third episode, I was much more on board with what they were doing. Um, so yeah, how did you feel? Because you've watched you've watched slightly more than I have. Um, and also, I guess the other thing is, how familiar are you with Maria Bamford? Because I was looking over her IMDb and everything while I was watching the first episode a little bit, and just went, I don't think I have any idea who this woman is, and I feel oh. like I should, but maybe I just wasn't making connections at the time. But I basically just went, I'm not totally familiar with this woman, and I probably should be. Yeah, no, I've, I've really enjoyed Maria Bamford for, like, I think I saw a comedy special from her. It was, like, right shortly after we got cable mm -hmm. um, when I was in high school. And I was just, like, l like watching the Comedy Central just constantly. So many, like, they that, that was back when they had classic SNL. So I was watching, like, first and second S season SNL all the right. time and lots of comedy specials. So I saw a comedy right, special from her. When they used to air a lot of comedy specials as opposed to them being specials. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Um, so, so I saw, like, an hour-long, I think, thing from her, I want to say, in the 90s, like, the early 90s. And sure. um, not the early 90s, the late 90s um, was when we got cable. We didn't have cable in the early 90s. 
That was for the fancy people. Um, like me! But, like you, yes. Like the late 90s, early aughts, actually, it would have been. Um, but, um, but I, so I've been a fan of hers for a long time now. Um, and you just wouldn't, and it's the sort of thing where whenever she would pop up, I always enjoy her. And, you know, obviously being in the suburbs of Chicago, it's not like I was going out to see your comedy. Right. Uh, you know, but, uh, but no, I've been a fan of hers for a long time. And, uh, and so I was excited that she was doing, um, that she was getting her own show and that she was, you know, really addressing some of her issues that she's had and the struggles she's had with mental health. Um, and so, so yeah, I think, you know, the way that you describe this uh, is I, I absolutely agree. agree with this is a challenging show. This is a show that, is not going to let you just sit back and laugh. Like even like something like Louie does because Louie is, is artistic and is doing these other ideas and he's exploring like all these different like concepts and different modes of storytelling and what is comedy and the borders of his himself and his character and everything in the first several, you know, pretty much in the run of, of Louie. But it's also just like a, a relaxing, fun show that you can just sort of go along with. And this is, show actively it challenges you to engage with it and to follow what's going on um like and, and it's the sort of thing where um we're giving our thoughts now and i pretty much agree with pretty much everything you were saying um but i also at the same time am hesitant to have too much of an opinion before i've seen it all sure and then can watch it some of it again you know yeah. because it could, I, like my instinct in the first episode is to say oh they're just they're not as clever as they think they're being with all this breaking the fourth wall meta stuff but then it gets they get so much better at that in the next yes. two episodes that yeah. i'm like wait are they is this a comment on people yes. thinking they're clever by doing them yes. like, you know like so so i i would not be surprised if there are a lot more layers to what is happening, happening. Yeah. that i just haven't seen yet because i've only seen the first three but um i'm i'm much more interested in it than i am even maybe enjoying it sure. right, right now but certainly i'll be watching the rest of it and um yeah i for me the the, the strongest thing i reacted to in these first three episodes is like this this notion of that that apparently bamford uh, maria bamford struggled with people calling her a sellout after she started doing all those it was like macy's right ads the with the christmas thingy you know the christmas shop around the treadmill and everything they they mentioned that in the second or third episode um uh, for doing ads for checklist or something like that some other yeah. superstore and her getting a lot of crap for from the in the alt comedy scene as a sellout and 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 this really shaking shaking her and making her more aware of everything that she's doing and all the ways that she can be perceived and everything and as someone who has strong feelings about the concept of selling out which is it's bullshit 99% of the time when people call someone a sell it's like yeah you know what no oh, I that's a conversation for another time I had a mini rant on Twitter about it uh I look forward to discussing it with friend of the show Vicar Murthy uh over some drinks next week because we had we have different opinions on it but um it was just infuriating to me in just exactly the right way because I was so protective <laughs> of Maria Bamford in that moment um, when she's dealing with that. I'm like, you know what? Screw all y'all. You just wish you had the opportunity to get paid a crap ton of cash so you can keep doing your alt comedy that doesn't pay anything at all. Um, but I, I, so I was getting very defensive of uh, uh, my perception of a real life character through a real life person through her semi fictionalized character and everything like so it was, I was really connecting with certain parts of it, but uh, while, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in it. I can't really say that I am actively enjoying it. And certainly 
like I'm looking at thinking about my immediate family. I can't think of very many people that I can actively recommend Lady Dynamite to because yeah. it is so challenging. But if you're a comedy nerd, if you are interested in the form of television, if you're interested in in the different types of storytelling that are happening, um, thanks to streaming, you know, thanks to the type of, of nicheification of television, that the, what that opens up, the opportunities that opens up for non-traditional um, sitcoms and, and dramas, then absolutely check out Lady Dynamite. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. And I, I agree with your hesitancy to like declare like a degree of enjoyment because it is more interesting than it is necessarily uh, really, really funny, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. I don't need, I'm not one of those people who needs sitcoms to be aggressively funny. I just need them to have a perspective and a point of view and then find their humor within that. And then I'm good. And then I'm good. And this has a very distinct point of view and they're finding comedy within that point of view. And that's, that's kind of all I expect. Yeah. So we'll see. I'll, I'll be checking in on it in a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, for now, that will wrap up our week in comedy. Uh, our just, like insanely long week in comedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did not. Ex- here we were thinking maybe this would be a shorter week, but just we had things to say about all of it. So yeah. uh, what wins your week in comedy and reality? It was so you think you can dance next gen, wasn't it? I can't wait for Nigel Lithgow to uh, grow a beard in season two of So You Think You Can Dance the Next Generation. Because then it'll be <laughs> really good. No, um, it it's the detour, and I'm giving it to all of the detour. Because you watched all of it this week. Because I watched all of it this week. Uh, but no, for the reasons we enumerated and discussed, uh, it's totally the detour. I, I had a very solid time uh, watching the detour this week. Uh, what about you? What won your week in comedy? I'm going to give it as a tie. Uh, I'm enjoying my position on this here fence uh, between Veep and all of Catastrophe Season 2. Because okay. I feel like I can't not give it to Veep. But Catastrophe Season 2 is really, really good. So I feel like I can't not give it to them. So I'm giving it to both. Okay. I think that's fair. Yeah. No one's going to yell at us for giving for you giving it a tie. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, and if they do, I don't really you don't care. care. Because it's, it's my podcast. Yeah. It's our podcast. We can do whatever the hell we want. Um, well, on that note, we'll take a break now. We want to take a break, so we're going to take a break. We'll listen to some music and come back with our week in genre and drama. This week in the genre and drama, we're going to catch up with the end of season two of Fear the Walking Dead. I'm going to talk a bit about the Cleverman pilot, uh, First Contact, and catch up with Penny Dreadfill, and the and talk about this week's episode of The Americans of Roy Rogers and Franconia. Then then Noel's going to talk about Roots, the new miniseries, and we'll both dive in, dive in with Steven Universe, Hit the Diamond, and uh, Person of Interest, 
sort of voce and the day the world went away. So many thoughts about that one. But first up, uh, let's let's just quickly talk a little bit about Fear the Walking Dead season two. Um, I'm curious what you thought. We haven't checked in with this one. Um, it ended, of course, a week ago, but uh, over a week ago, I should say. But um, okay. I'm particularly curious what you thought about this because I know you were more positive in season one than a lot of people. And also, this was your first time really having a week to week the Walking Dead experience. So I'm curious how that shaped your thoughts on season two. Um, I didn't really like it all that much. Um, Fair enough, I, which is probably why we didn't talk about it very much. Right, and I never like brought it up to discuss because I was just like, well, this was fine. I don't really have anything really interesting to say. Um, and struggled to like have a more passionate, impassioned response one way or another about it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was just this, and I talked a lot about this week to week with Corey because he was reviewing it over at TV.com. And it was basically just like, a lot of this is happening very quickly and some of it's not happening like super convincingly. Yeah. Um, and I struggled with that in a lot of spots, um, particularly like um, Ruben Blades' character, um, very sudden and quick descent into madness um just kind of came out of nowhere um and then nick um and don't get me wrong i love what they're doing with nick i think it's really fascinating uh but it happens really quickly and with very little like motivation and very little like propulsion and it's more of a credit to the actor and also to the visual that him covered in blood is endlessly interesting endlessly compelling and it's more subtext than it is text and which is fine on a certain level but a lot of it just is maybe requiring too much work for me to fill in gaps as opposed to me reading into the show which there's a very sizable difference between filling in gaps and reading into things and fear the walking dead was very much operating on a I need to work to fill in these gaps because the writing isn't doing a well enough job of making sure everything fits together. And so, yeah, I just, I never really got like super into it. The zombie attack at the end of the episode wasn't really a zombie attack at the end of the episode. And I'm not entirely sure what this show looks like when it comes back for its second half because all of its characters are off to the wind. And we can talk about some other character stuff, like Travis deciding that he wants to really spend time with his son, who clearly is damaged and psychotic on some level. And he's like, I'm taking the hit for that. I'm just like, Travis, no, I don't I don't need you to do that. Um, go, go spend time with Kim Dickens so we can watch you interact with Kim Dickens. Um, so how did you feel having much more experience with Walking Dead as a franchise? than I do, and I mean, is it repeating a lot of the same mistakes that the, that the show did? You're grinning at me, so I'm assuming yes. And um, so, yeah, and, and tell me how you were feeling about some of, like, the character stuff as well. Well, what I think is interesting is the our different relationships with The Walking Dead is shaping mm-hmm. what the, the biggest notable elements are, or the, you know, in our case, problems, but um, yeah. with the, the end run of... of this half of the season of Fear the Walking De- Fear the Walking Dead, and the biggest one for me is they they already did this storyline with the f- you know the person who sees the walkers or the dead as 
not evil, but just like their family members who are sick. Yeah. They did that. That was season two. That was the barn. Right. We, we did that already. Why are we doing this again? And, you know, I think the stuff with Travis's son is actually a much more interesting take on what they did with Mika on, on, on The Walking Dead. So that's something where, again, we're seeing a younger person traumatized by this world, you know, shutting down, getting violent, having a different relationship with the dead and with the living than maybe that then is certainly healthy and is certainly like they've had a break and there was a certain level of trauma that they reached where there's been a break and there's something seriously seriously wrong so uh, whereas on the walking dead with with mika i think it was mika maybe that was her sister um anyways with the the the, the young girls um that happened mostly off screen and um, like we found out when it was too late and we had okay. that that like just horribly sad episode the grove dealing with that where we find out too that she kills her sister because then her sister will come back as a walker and she'll be your friend and you know it just breaks your heart um but this is so this is taking that idea but it looks like it'll be doing something different with it so that that's a i'm more willing to go with that one because again it looks like they're doing something different but the the thing with the 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 you know bringing back the the sun and the the having all of the family members like in the cell or in the cave or whatever. Um, that was just too similar. And yes, they let Kim Dickens do a very different approach where she just like locked her in there, um, which I appreciate uh, certainly, but it just, that, that was, that was kind of badass though at the same time. <laughs> well, well, as we say, like, I, I think it was, I think it was great that they, that they set up the same premise and then went somewhere different with it. But the trouble yeah. is they spent too long before they went somewhere different. I thought, yeah, sure. I can see that. And that's something that they're going to run into time and again because The Walking Dead has been on a long time. And there's only so many, like, there's a trouble that the show is running into, The Walking Dead is running into. There's only so many zombie stories you can tell before you got to get really creative. And so when you have Fear of the Walking Dead, if you're going to engage with these same ideas you've, they've already spent a long time on with The Walking Dead, they have to, I think, diverge a lot quicker than sure. this season this half season shows them doing um but i do like the the stuff that we get we're getting with nick i think actually for me worked really well i like that they have a very direct engagement with his background as a a, a drug user and yeah. as an addict connecting that in with his relationship with um you know the the woman whose name escapes me at the moment cecilia cecilia yeah celia um who's celia. Ru running um the 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 house and everything and and that as well as his connection to the dead and everything. I think that's actually really uh, a much more interesting way to go with that character than yeah. some of the, sort of the withdrawal stuff they were doing with him earlier. I love the way they handled um, the Doug Ray Scott, Doug Ray Scott character and, and, you know, giving strand. Yeah. yeah well, strand his, 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 um, his husband, lover, boyfriend, lover. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I really loved the way that they handled that reveal. They're like, Oh, and by the way, he's gay or bi or something else. Uh, yeah. And that's, you know, a thing that we do on this show. Uh, again, I, the way that The Walking Dead has handled and the Fear of the Walking Dead have handled um, LGBTQ characters, uh, I, I, it may have taken them a while to get there. But I think in the past several seasons, we can talk about Denise and other, you know, se separately. But with, with the, just from a representation standpoint, I really have appreciated that. Um, and, I, and having them meet back up but it's we know it's too late and that have that caused all this tension with celia i think worked really well um but yeah on the whole it just wasn't essential enough 
sure. that's why we didn't end up talking about it every week because right. we were it's watching not. it, but it wasn't really worth, uh, you know, a discussion every week. So, um, are you are you gonna come back? Do you think? Probably at least for a few episodes. Okay. Um, whether or not like I stick with it after those episodes, I don't know. It'll depend on how things go. Um, but we'll see. I'm definitely I'll come back for the. I mean, there's it's still split up really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like it's it's well it's split up really weird, but in keeping with how they split up The Walking Dead. So it's just like, oh, well, it's only seven weeks. I, I could do that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. We'll see. Okay. We'll I, see. <laughs> I could go either way on it. Um, so, listeners, if you have an opinion, let us know. Uh, but now I'll move on to our next show in our weekend genre, and that's Clever Man, uh, which is a show, an Australian show that's airing on Sundance. Um, it just got actually picked up for a second season, so we know it's, I think, a six-episode first season, and I think it's about 12 episodes, so I don't know if it got picked up for 12 or if it got picked up for an additional six, bringing the total to 12. Um, but I thought this was a really um, intriguing first episode. I'm excited to have some non-UK imported television because uh, there's not a lot of that, at least that makes its way all the way through the, the noise and the clutter to, to us. So that uh, that is that is certainly something I appreciate. The, op- the cold open is just like designed to make me want to watch it. It's this woman is on the train. She starts getting harassed by these jerk guys. And then and she's got this cool like future tech kind of book thing. Oh, uh, and they and and then they are started harassing her, and so she like reveals that she's this like badass person that they're terrified of, and she like go, leaves the train, and I'm just like, yeah, this is this is a show for me, <laughs> based on this <laughs> based on this opening like one minute or something. Um, I think so far I've only seen the first episode so far. It um it has some intriguing elements, like just really standard genre, like ideas of there's like an underclass. There's this group uh, of people called, um, they're called like the Harry's or Harry, uh, because they're like a different evolutionary, like a certain point, there's an evolutionary split and, uh, they, they have a lot of hair on them and they, um, they are very strong. Um, it's set in a future dystopian future. Um, uh, so there's humans and there's Harry's and, um, and I mean, being from Australia, that's it also ties in with the some of the Aboriginal um, mysticism uh, around the idea of the dreaming and the clever man, uh, the which is like a, a wise man, I think uh, it, I could have that wrong, but that's what I'm remembering, at least. So there, there's some really it's a lot of really familiar genre stuff of like the. The ne'er-do-well kind of character who's gotten out of this like zone that protected zone or whatever but but it's not it's it's like a like a ghetto basically uh where where the the unfortunates are you know are they're unfortunate people whoever like human or most all the harriers are there but also humans are there too if you're poor then you're stuck in the zone and uh and, and so there there's like familiar ideas but uh it's 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 different enough or it's familiar enough that i that it's accessible and then there's some some uh some other ideas that they may be playing with that i have not necessarily seen before with the aboriginal uh, mysticism element that uh, and again there's not a lot of that in the first episode so it could be me wishful thinking but i have a feeling that we're getting into some of that and it's just kind of nice to see a genre show with a not white guy lead so there's also that as well hopefully the woman in the cold open who doesn't show up for like the rest of the first episode 
we'll be back at some point. But uh, but no, I, I I'm I'm intrigued by the first episode and certainly willing to give this one a little bit of time. Um, the next one I'm gonna mention is Penny Dreadful because I caught up on that and it's been really good, guys. I got like super behind. I watched the premiere and then I hadn't gotten back to it and I watched the next four episodes this week. And last week's episode of Blade of Grass was the all um, uh, Ava Green episode, but this time it had uh, it had a couple other actors as well, and it was really 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 good like amazing like oh man if only every episode was this good um but and it really underlined for me how much i don't care about certain characters um the actor who plays caliban um is just so much better in that episode when he's not playing frankenstein's monster and gets to do these other things i'm like i knew i really liked you actor (laughs) i just don't like the character that you usually settled with um the, the stuff we've been getting with um with Malcolm and uh, and the the Josh Hartnett character also is uh, is is solid, not the most compelling, but I think for the amount of mystery surrounding his backstory, I think what they give us works and makes sense. I mean, Brian Cox shows up as his uh, as his father, and that's I mean we're always going to enjoy Brian Cox, um, but uh, but no, I, th- I think it's been a very solid, the most solid yet I would say season like string of episodes. I don't I still don't care about Billy Piper. I don't really care about Dorian Gray and like the having a threesome on covered in blood and everything was just like, ugh, I don't care about you. So I can't like I'm, I don't know if I'm supposed to like be drawn to this or be repulsed by it, but I just don't care. Um, for me, with, with uh, threesomes and with all these things, it's got to be like a five way with with a, a, a Hannibal, you know, stag or kaleidoscoping something or other for me to really be invested in your extreme sex scene um but um anyways uh the the parts of the show that i am most invested in continue to deliver and uh i certainly very intrigued with where this season is going with the whole dracula as the brother of lucifer and all of that and uh yeah i'm just super i'm super on board with ava green and patty lapone and all of that stuff so we'll see where it heads but i'm certainly much more positive on petty dreadful this season than i have been in the past um that takes us to the americans another really good episode page be careful what you wish for more on the americans in two weeks we're going to do a whole special segment on it (laughs) in two weeks after the finale uh, you're welcome yeah, but uh, but we are running super long, so I'm going to throw it to you because we got to talk a little bit about Roots, which I didn't watch, but you did. Have you seen the original Roots, first of all? And what did you think of this of this new take on it? Uh, I haven't seen the original Roots in a long while, like 10 years at minimum, but probably closer to 15. Um, so, and even then, like, I my memory of it is sadly very hazy i remember um certain sections of it more um and basically what i remember is um kundakite um being whipped in the 1977 version um which is uh obviously uh very different from how it's shot depicted in this new version um but comparisons aside because i can't really speak to them as well as i'd like to be able to um, it's the new miniseries that his that history did um, is very good. I thought, um, particularly the first two episodes. The second two episodes are a little less good um, and a little weirdly paced. Uh, but it's still a really solid uh, miniseries that um, 
is well shot, well acted, and very well written in a number of places. And I really enjoyed um, their some of the larger touches that they made that were more founded in academic scholarship. Uh, so this idea um, of Kunta Kinte's uh, village being a major hub, basically, as opposed to just kind of a nowhere type of village, um, which is, if I remember correctly, is how it's depicted in the 77 version and feeds into this the, the research at the time, the popular research at the time about how tribes in Africa and civilization in Africa was functioning and that it's depicted with a significant amount more nuance than in the new one than it was in the 1977 one in part because academic research has just come much much further uh, than it was in 77 and so that aspect of it really kind of heightened and paid a lot more respect I think to the characters and it grounded um, larger aspects of the show particularly ideas of tradition and uh, fatherhood which is maybe a little too central to this story, considering um, how quickly we kind of shift away from um, Kizzy, who is uh, Kunta Kite's uh, daughter. The story, story shifts to her, um, but very quickly shifts to her son, uh, Chicken George, and he becomes much more prominent within the narrative uh, than she ever was, and it was very startling. Like, I looked down because I was talking to some TV.com folks while I was watching the third episode and suddenly we're in, we have like a solid like 15, 20 year time skip and Chicken George is now the main character of the narrative and I just went, but we didn't really spend any time with Kizzy. And Kizzy's in Nika, in, in Nika Rose. And Nika she's, Rose, yeah. Yeah, she's fantastic. And I didn't recognize her briefly and then I just went, oh, she's so good. Why are we spending more time with her? Which isn't to say anything about the uh, fellow who's playing uh, Chicken George because he's also really good. And that I think is like kind of where I'll wrap up is that Ma Malachi Kirby, who plays Kunta Kinte, is um, just insanely good. Uh, just a number of things that he's doing within um, the first two and a half episodes. I just, I never wanted the show to leave him um and i kept i forgot a little bit that the show actually does leave Kunta Kinte behind uh to focus on other other members of his family and i just did not want that to happen because he's just really really captivating um there's a lot of solid amounts of anger and nobility with his situation and kirby gets gets it on a very visceral level and then Obviously, the your name is Toby sequence where um, he's being whipped into submission quite literally um, is equally powerful as it was in 1977. Um, it probably registers as more powerful to someone who didn't see that 77 version in 1977. Um, so, like my sense of things like uh, editing, editing and cinematography and makeup. Uh, just makes the 77 version look slightly sanitized compared to what we get in the 2016 version. Um, so that factored into it, but I mean, still a really great performance from uh, Malachi Kirby. And then the, uh, I'm going to butcher his pronunciation and I apologize, but uh, Regay Jean, Regay, Regay Jean Page, I apologize. 
who um, played uh, Chicken George, is also just really, really great at the larger, more flamboyant stuff that is necessary for Chicken George to do really well to show how he interacts with um, white people. And um, But then the more subtler stuff of after of how angry he is at um, Tom Lee, and who's just played with a significant amount of insanity by Jonathan Rhys Myers. Um, it's just, it's really, really well acted, Kate. And mm. I think that's the big takeaway, I think. Apart from it also just being well shot, they had different directors for each of the episodes, including um, Mario Van Peebles directed the second episode, which is tellingly my, my favorite episode, I think. Um, he just did a really nice job with it. But it's a really well done show, and I'd encourage you, if you get time, to check it out. And it's still really powerful and really moving. And but at the same time, I also hope that they don't follow in um, the uh, other miniseries doing um, sequels because no one talks about those, and kind of good reason. Because um, I haven't even seen those, but most of the people I talked to have basically been, eh, "It was a, it was good. It just wasn't maybe a reason for it." And I don't. Based on this, I'm very firmly that there's not necessarily a reason for sequels to this. Um, but no, I'd encourage you to watch it, um, and it'll remind you just basically how awful white people are. Because okay. we're the worst. Well, <laughs> certainly, uh, I mean, and it's it's it sounds like then there we don't have that like lone heroic white person there to like. Be like the hashtag not all whites, which shouldn't be the case in this there's, story. <laughs> there's one hashtag not all white person. Uh huh. Um, but it's a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's very much it's very fine, but she's not in the narrative a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And then even like the even the one character here, just like oh Matthew, good, you're you're gonna be you're gonna be the nice white guy. Mm -hmm. And then, no, he's only the slightly less worst white guy, <laughs> which was nice to see that he wasn't going to be the bland, oh, uh, we should be a little bit nicer. He is, we should be a little bit nicer, but he's still really mean. Yeah. 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 Well, and again, I hopefully I will be able to find time to watch Roots. Now, the reason I didn't watch it, listeners, for this week is because I want to watch the original Roots before I watch the new Roots. Um, and I did not have time to watch both. So right, and the original Roots is a lot. I mean, it's eight it's, episodes originally, six episodes re-edited, which is probably what it is on your DVD set. Yeah. But it's still, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a long. It's long. So hopefully yeah. in the next couple of weeks I'll be able to, to watch them both. But um, when I discovered I did not have time to watch both of them this week, I instead caught up on all of those other shows that you heard me talk about in this episode. Yeah. So, but hopefully I will be able to chip away at that and, and have some thoughts for you guys soon. And I know, uh, like, it's been... It's gotten a lot of uh, discussion and, and a lot of praise for this one. So I'm glad yeah. to hear your thoughts on it. And certainly I will do my best to catch up with it. Because if, if Noel Kirkpatrick recommends that I watch something, then I watch something, uh, <laughs> listeners. That's how it works because he's got good taste. That's why you're my co-host. Also because you said yes. So <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so did someone say no before me? Oh, no, there's only ever you, Noel, of course. She's lying to me. I can tell. <laughs> Yeah. There was an evil, e evil glimmer in my eye, perhaps. Well, that's, that's evil glimmer in my eye. I think is a good way to get us to Steven Universe, which had, which had, ru the, you know, the rubies, and I really appreciated that they were not rubies. A, a rubies. Use. <laughs> the, the the one that's just always question marks around 
around yeah. uh, the head, which is entertaining. Um, uh, there's uh, this is hit the diamond. Uh, this was a really light episode, as far as I concerned, but it was fun. It was fun. What did you think? Well, I, I just talked for a little while. Tell me what uh, you thought about uh, this episode, because it's a surprise. I really liked it, but I want to hear what you thought. <laughs> oh, I thought it was really fun, and uh, basically my thoughts are. It was light, but I really liked it. It's like so many different <laughs> baseball episodes of TV shows. So right. Like the DS9 baseball episode. It's light, <laughs> but I really liked it. Or the uh, um, WKRP in Cincinnati baseball episode. Light, but I liked it. So, so like, unless it's going to be like the X-Files more intense baseball sure. one that I also really liked, uh, it tends to be a safe well for shows to go to. Um, the, there's a lot of energy in it. I like, the, like I said, the different... Uh, interactions of the various rubies was nice and again the fact that the the the, the gems the like the bad guy gems or whatever are not some monolithic force but are a series of characters who are maybe a little less interested in our heroes than certainly in um peridot <laughs> than they think yes. they are and, and they're just not some like again just not some monolithic force like some extension of like yellow diamond sent them there uh, yes. but then she's not following everything they're doing, so they can get distracted and sent to Uranus. Or Neptune? It was Neptune. Neptune. It was yeah. Neptune. Uh, and, and buy some time with that. a nice planet! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I thought it was, again, fun and light, but yeah. I enjoy- but I liked it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, too. I, I liked, and really, this is an episode that only works based on the amount of buildup that was given to this episode in a lot of ways. Like, Stuff like Lapis calling herself Bob just is something that's not funny unless we have the two preceding episodes, basically. Mm -hmm. And even, like, just the sheer amount of variety in, like, costuming that they they whipped up for themselves. Like, Pearl slash Earl's, like, old-timey League of Their Own-esque um with pants though mm-hmm. naturally um baseball outfit was just so great and how very into it pearl was mm-hmm. all the sliding and the catching and everything i just really love that pearl's into baseball of course she is <laughs> i think that's just great but then also just oh the sheer cuteness of ruby and sapphire yeah just Oh, it's so good! <laughs> Sorry, I'm shouting, and that probably came out really because there's no furniture in my house right now. Uh, so that was probably much louder than it should have been. <laughs> but it, it's so good. Um, and I like that the rubies were just tricked, kind of, by all of it. Mm-hmm. And it was okay. I didn't feel bad that the rubies were tricked by all of it or anything like that. And, yeah, it was just, it was all very much a lot of fun. Um... And yeah, it, it was just good and fun, and I I enjoyed all of it. Yeah. I, I I I I I even like small gags of like, again, everything Lapis does just makes me happy. <laughs> so her just reaching up and stepping to the side to catch the baseball, or her just watching it sail over her head, making no effort to chase after it, <laughs> it was just lots of really good business. And so I really enjoyed this and. Um, I've already watched uh, next week's episode, and it's it's good. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's good. Um, I couldn't resist watching pirated episodes on YouTube. I'm sorry, Kate, uh, <laughs> but it, 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 it it's also really good. So I'm looking forward to discussing that episode with you. It's it's interesting. 
Okay. Well, I that's that's an intriguing. Well, no, I don't get to discuss it with you because I won't be here. You won't be here. Do you have any (sighs) anything you'd like to say? Any vague hints you'd like to give? Um, Stephen gets a new power, and he deals with trying to um, use that new power, and it also involves donuts. Ah, well, these are things I like, and very fitting because as we record, it is. It's National National Donut Donut Day. Day. I didn't have a donut. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, yeah. that, that's okay. Stephen had it for you, so that's yes. that's 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 good to hear. So I look I'm looking forward to that now. Um, yeah. But uh, let's let's move on. I, I know we would like to linger in the delightful world of donuts, but we should move on yeah. to and sad... linger in person of interest. Yeah, oh God, yeah, linger in a sad uh, development for person of interest. Uh, this is this is these episodes um, really just again highlighted for me the why I'm less into the show than other people, and it's because the show has very different priorities than I do. Because I don't care about many parts of the show, but I do care about Root, and I do care about Shaw. So um, when they kill off Root an episode after Shaw gets back, I was not happy. I was not, like, viscerally upset the way that I was when when Lexa was killed on the 100. Um, I guess I should have spoiler tagged that, but um, at this point, well, I feel to like be it's fair. Kind of had it spoiled for each of us, so yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but um, but the for me, it was less about um, frustration at another death of of a LGBT character on TV this year, and more frustration over shoddy writing of a death. If you're gonna kill a character, and I tweeted about this earlier today, if you're gonna kill a character as like an extension of their arc or the show's arc, you need to build to that for more than one episode. So when at the start, start of this episode, when uh, this episode 10, when Root just starts philosophizing like out of nowhere, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, okay, well she's she's give, saying her goodbyes and giving her last touching thoughts to these different characters. So that way when she dies later in this episode, it will have meaning and they can reflect on the things that she's been saying for weeks now. So eventually genre shows will stop having their white uh, cisgender, usually heterosexual male protagonists only spurred into action by the deaths of their female cohorts and compatriots. But apparently that day is not today, uh, because the, the having having Root get killed so that Finch will finally do what he, she's been telling him he should do for weeks is really frustrating. And I, I don't really care that now she's the voice of the machine. And it's like she's living on forever, because like the show makes sure that we that tries to make us okay with the fact that she's dying because she's really not dying because she's alive in the machine and now she and the machine are one and I just didn't buy it for a moment so I was just more irritated and glad I wasn't super invested in the show I don't know how how did you feel about it well I feel like it's at least sort of kind of different enough from Lexa yeah I agree that again I'm not like viscerally angry about it but it's such it's such a trend this season mm-hmm. that it you can't help but be just frustrated. And for at least in my case, you can't help but be frustrated uh, since this is this is a less personal thing, like less personal representational thing for me than it is for a lot of other people. So me saying that this is something less than Lexa is me speaking very personally and not from like a larger scope type of thing and not intended to diminish other people's reactions because it was a very loud reaction to this. But as yet another extension of a number of 
shows with very devoted uh, fan bases, particularly devoted fan bases who have relished and enjoyed the fact that they had two very prominent and compelling and complicated um, characters that weren't straight guys. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's be honest, the most interesting characters on the show. Right, and that's the, the other thing. The best characters is... on the show. Nobody cares about Reese. Fusco yeah. is good as, like, you know, the hard and the funny guy. But, like, yeah. when I look at how the showrunners and, the like, the creators of this show see the end line, yeah. they see the white guys there. Yeah. Uh, like, the person I'm most confident is getting out of this season alive is Fusco. Yeah, and, yeah, I think that I think that was always kind of a given anyway. Yeah. Uh, because he's he's the normal guy. Yeah. But I think that the other thing is, is that and your mention of like the three white dudes being the least interesting thing about this show, it's really telling because when this when Root got shot and before they revealed that she was dead, even though we all knew she was dead, mm-hmm. um, I was very much reminded of when Root went off on her own, Shaw had been kidnapped in the previous season, and it was just the three of them, and there's an episode where it's just the three of them. And it's the most mind-numbingly boring episode of the show. Yeah. For a number of reasons. But it's because there's no there's no really compelling dynamics that haven't been explored between the three of them. And the only other compelling dynamic between the three of them is the fact that Fusco doesn't know what's going on. But now he knows what's going on. And that that doesn't even really isn't really given a lot of room, which is fine, because it doesn't need to be given a lot of room. There's no time to give it a lot of room. Um, so I just, I, I still really liked the, the episode 10 um, as just kind of a plot episode. And just like in, as an excitement episode, it was really compelling and interesting to watch. Um, but I just, Root being killed and then that this, as you said, is spurring... Um, Finch on to do what he really should have done much sooner. Um, just, I just, uh, it's just frustrating. And even though, and on some level, I still kind of like the weird intertextuality of they've killed off Amy Acker, but not really type of thing that Angel did. Um, sorry, spoiler alert for Angel, I guess, 10 years later. Um, that. I can kind of chuckle at that, but it also just doesn't feel as interesting or rewarding because the machine doesn't have a personality that can reflect on what that death means, which is one of the things that they did with Fred really, really well. So even though she, the machine chose Root as her voice, it's not a, it's not a big thing really because the machine can, the machine's response to Root's death is is basically choosing her voice, and I don't. I don't know necessarily how compelling or interesting that's going to be. And yeah, I'm just, I'm frustrated, but I just, I want to be more frustrated and I can't be more frustrated just from where I am with the show and who I am as a person that I'm just more frustrated for other people than I necessarily am about what the show did and why the show did it. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does. It does. Um, And yeah, like the the most interesting dynamics on the show, as far as I'm concerned, are Root and Harold. Yeah. And which has always been really interesting. Yeah, and in Root and Shaw. Yeah. 
and no one else. Yeah. So, like, every now and again, Sean Reese do, you know, buddy cop, not cop, but, like, beating people up or whatever. Buddy tough person's things that are entertaining. But on the whole, like, uh, like they took and they killed off one of their most interesting characters. And and so when I'm looking at these last stretch of episodes, I'm like, mm-hmm, who do we have left to, to, to carry our story? Reese, a character I have never cared about. Um, Fusco, who I enjoy, but is there's only so much there there at this yeah. point. Um, because, they, again, like you said, they've explored pretty much everything they could with this character at this point. Um, because there's nobody to challenge Harold anymore. Yeah. Or to, to think outside the box. And I think they, they, they looked at it and they said, okay, we've got Harold and we've got Root and that... Two characters who theoretically perform very much the same function. There's too much of an overlap in the the roles that they provide to the show. We have two hacker characters, and we don't really need Root as a badass, because now Shaw's back, we've got lots of badasses who can fight, you know, and kill things. So we, we need to kill somebody to show the stakes are rising or whatever. And that's going to be, that's not going to be our first character that came in. Yeah. And so it's just, and I also think you could have given us one episode between like the fake out. Well, if you kill yourself, I'm going to kill myself. and We'll have more dead suicidal lesbians on TV. Um, and then when Root actually dies in the next episode, I would have liked just a little more buffer there too. Um, but it's just, I don't, I don't care about the characters that this show thinks I should care about. And so we'll see what happens. I think this episode also falls too much, like a bit of a false equivalency between Root and Elias. Yeah. It does. Because by having them, like, it's like, oh, Elias and then Root. It's like, uh, Root is a way more important character. I really don't care that Elias is dead. Right. The uh, only reason I kind of care is because it's Papa Mars. Right. So, like, like th- th- there's too much of a false equivalency between those one character le- being, like, a, a, Root being an escalation of Elias. It's like, now you're going to be like, oh, but if so-and-so had died, and it would have really meant something. It's like, no. You, like this doesn't ugh, right elias um, is a very off-screen type of presence and friendship for harold and mm-hmm. while um enrico's um chemistry with um michael Anderson is not to be denied um it's very it's not as grounded in a as you were saying like an ideological perspective and contrast that brings to the table and so that creates kind of a weird thing. And so this, that the show wants, like you said, wants to see Root as the final straw with um, Elias, gosh, uh, as like the prelude, basically. And it, it like you said, it, it doesn't work because there, we haven't spent enough time with Elias. Elias doesn't provide enough of a counterpoint to Harold in a way. He provides insight into Harold every now and then. Well, also, he's a crime lord and a horrible murderer. Well, yeah, too. but... So, Root, I mean, like, I know that's not recent, but still. Root is also kind, also a murderer. Um, yeah, but she spent a long... T- they, they, like, developed yeah. that over a long time. She's seen the error of yes. way. She doesn't kill people who aren't bad guys anymore. Yeah. You know, like... Right, right, right. <laughs> It's about as close as you're going to get to redemption for a psycho, yes. <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, or lack of a word coming to me, um, as you're going to get on a show like this. But um, anyways, we'll see. I We'll see what happens with the last uh, handful of yeah, episodes. Yeah, because we've got it's just, three left. There's a lot. There's a lot more episodes left for Root to be gone. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, and I talked about this on Twitter, too. There is a way that you can build to a major character death on a TV show where it feels inevitable, where it feels like we're lucky that nobody's died yet. It was only a matter of time. And they didn't do that. They didn't build the, in this episode, this one episode, they do that. But they should have spent a couple more episodes building that tone. And given the the sheer number of times that they've gotten out of ridiculous situations, it's just like, oh, well, we wanted her to die. So this time, the bullets that she spends all of her time dodging didn't all miss her. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it just felt too arbitrary. And, and they hadn't established that as a changing, like they hadn't, they changed the rules of their world without building to that without really showing that the rules were changing outside of like dialogue like the rules are changing Harold <laughs> oh I can't wait for you to read Vanderwerf's piece on TV death now Kate because you're anticipating a lot of what he was saying um yeah well yeah. you know that, that's a pretty smart guy he is um so <laughs> it's I think one of the other things that we can talk about just a little bit and fr- my friend Danielle brought this up because when she was watching the episode she was texting me is um and since you're kind of disengaged with the show so i'm going to kind of i'm interested in what you think about this because this was kind of a like a weird plot hole for my friend is that okay so the machine wants harold alive but then harold's the primary target for our recurring sniper character so was Samaritan anticipating Root getting killed so that Finch would do this thing and unleash the machine? And is this what Samaritan wanted the whole time? Or was this just kind of a weird convoluted, going back to your idea about the show breaking its rules, of was this just a weird convoluted way that they kind of forgot that they wanted Harold to live? And... Or that that episode had said, don't kill yes. him, and then sent someone to kill him saying, primary target. Yes. I mean, like, are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. So I, I was curious about your thought, because I I was just like, well, I mean, who am I to question the foresight of super artificial intelligence? <laughs> An experienced TV viewer and critic is what right. you are. And here's my answer to that. I would not be surprised if the show tried to pull yeah. that, and I would call bullshit yeah. on it. And, so I was like, you didn't earn it. If that's if you want to say that that's the case, I guess like based on everything you've shown, it's not not the case. But you didn't earn yeah. that. And I and my thing with her is just like I I can't answer that question because again there are too many schemes within schemes on this show sometimes, and too many like the all seeing Samaritan type of thing for me to be able to go. I agree that if that's what they're pulling, it's total bullshit. But without being able to answer that question, I'm just like, I don't know, but it seems like kind of a big plot hole in the end, regardless of whether or not it's a scheme within a scheme. It's a contrivance to make sure that Root gets shot and killed. It's it's a, aha, but Captain America was working for Hydra the whole time! To bring things full circle. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be uh, checking in on Person of Interest Um in the next couple of weeks, feel free again. If I believe, are you here for the first of interest finale, Noel? Or are you going to be I'm gone? I'm probably going to be gone. I think um, I'll check real quick. Um, but I'm... we will talk about it when you get back, though, because I will want your thoughts. <laughs> um, Let's see. Oh no, um, no, I won't be back for that. Yeah. Okay. So feel free to phone in or email in. We can read your thoughts, okay. Noel. Uh, 
when 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 that's uh aired but um yeah we'll we'll see we'll see what happens I'm going to keep watching, so, um, and I know you will too, yeah. Noel, but uh, that wraps up our week in TV, so what wins your week in genre? Um, I'm going to I'm gonna um, split the difference like you did with comedy and reality and give it to two very different shows. Um, so Roots, for being really compelling um, drama and a very interesting uh, retelling of a miniseries that more than justified its um, remake of a classic. Uh, which was the other thing that I think a lot of people were like, why are you remaking Roots? And then the show went, this is why. And it was a really compelling answer to that question. Uh, and then I gave it to Steven Universe because of rubies and Ruby and Ruby and all that sort of stuff because I laughed every time. <laughs> uh, what about you? What won your week in uh, genre drama this week? Uh, Blade of Grass, last week's episode of <laughs> Penny Dreadful, which I watched this week. I think that's uh, fair. I gave, it to the, I gave it to all 10 episodes yeah. of The Detour, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and the Americans is just a given, listeners. Sure. There's also the Americans, but like, we, I didn't really talk about it this week because we we're so short on time. We're running so, so long, I should say. Um, but always assume that I, I also loved the Americans and it's like the Americans award goes to Penny Dreadful of Blade of Grass. Now, if you show notes here at the end of the podcast, you can find a post for this episode up at theteleverse.org, where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, where we have an M4A chaptered feed that lets you skip between the segments, and an MP3 unchaptered feed. We would appreciate any feedback there. Ratings, review, re- reviews in iTunes do help other people find the show. You can also rate and review us in Stitcher, where you can find the podcast, and we're up in Google Play Music as well. Um, we're on Facebook, where you can like the page and start up a conversation. And we are both on Twitter. I am at theteleverse, and Noel, you are... At Noel RK. You can find archives of Noel's writing over at TV.com uh, while he's on, on hiatus during his move. And you can find my writing up at the AV Club where I'm still reviewing Veep Weekly as well as plenty of other shows over my tenure there as well. Um, now we will take a break and come back with friend of the show, Lena Rivera, who came on to talk a little Agent Carter with us, which was super fun. So we'll take a break, listen to a certain musical number, <laughs> and be right back after this you walk in a room and nature takes its course conquers me by force and with no remorse baby i assume that you always knew the recipe it's simply me and you you can never fight Laws of attraction, that chemical reaction, got us in this mess. Still, I must confess, have more than a distraction. Now I clearly see it's up to me. Miss Carter, I hate to interrupt. Yes, Mr. Jarvis? Wake up. Agent Carter, all hands on deck. I didn't know our government had such good taste in secretaries. What's your name, darling? Agent. Now, Miss Carter. I go to work. Is that all you've got? You look like a lady looking to dance. I'm afraid I'd only step on your toes. You boys play nice. Marvel's Agent Carter. 
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsley, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week at the DVD shelf, I'm I'm excited that we're talking about the show. And I'm also sad that we're talking about this show because it means that it's eligible for the DVD shelf. And I haven't quite like completely accepted it yet. And that show is Agent Carter. And, and here to help us dive in with Agent Carter's friend of the show, Elena Rivera. Elena, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for coming out to talk about Agent Carter. Now, this is one that has been, was on the bubble for quite a while this year. Um, of course, we were talking about it here at the Televerse. We're big fans of, of Agent Carter, Noel and I. Um, and it was just, we were kind of kept hoping that maybe, on, we knew it wasn't going to get renewed, but like maybe something would happen. And then it did finally get the axe here recently, making it eligible uh, for the DVD shelf. Were you hoping, did you have, were you holding out hope, Elena, that it would somehow magically get renewed? I was. I mean, I was hoping that it would somehow, like the magical Gallivant season two renewal would happen uh-huh. with Agent Carter again, but maybe two seasons just like Gallivant was kind of all the ABC could chill out for. Although I was just looking online and Haley Atwell apparently is giving interviews saying, I'll do whatever with Peggy Carter. I love it. So who knows if something can happen in the future? Yeah, well, and hopefully it will. I would love to see like uh, like a revival of the character in like a Netflix movie or yes. like there's a lot of things that they could still do, I think, with this this character and with this world. And when I say this character, we're talking about Agent Carter, uh, which means that we're talking about Peggy Carter. But for me, this show is more than just her. It's Haley Atwell is the, the core, but... For me, when I talk about Agent Carter, I'm talking about uh, I'm talking about Peggy, and I'm talking about Jarvis. And Stark can show up and say, you know, zing, can zing off some one-liners every now and again, acceptable. And I also need Enver Gyokai to be there as well. That, that's what I need for my for my Agent Carter. Um, uh, what about you guys? What What do you think of as the core of this show, outside of, of course, the fantastic Haley Atwell as Agent Carter? I I really I love I was thinking and reflecting on this show I really love the way that the show created the relationship between her and Jarvis um, they're really kind of like a, a ragtag bunch of weirdos trying to figure <laughs> out and solve solve kind of all of the different crises that come about um, they have such a great they have such great chemistry together and are really great partners um, but I am so in love with Enver and Daniel Sousa like if he if there was a future movie if he was not on it, I would be really sad. Whereas I'm pretty much just like, I just need Peggy and Jarvis to just do things together. <laughs> I don't need them to do like romantic things because I don't want Anna to be upset with or jilted or anything because that's just wrong. Um, hey, but- we don't know what their relationship is. <laughs> they could be mon- monogamish. They could be, but I don't think Edwin's that kind of guy. Uh, yeah, he doesn't strike me as such. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like Anna would be down for some, you know, other shenanigans, perhaps, but right. but not so much him. No, he, he's a little too prim and proper, I think, for that. Uh, so, no, for me, the core of the show was always uh, Peggy and Jarvis. Um, Sousa can drop by, Howard can drop by, but as long as it's the two of them just kind of beating up random evil in the 1950s, I'm good. That's all I need. <laughs> It was really fun to go back and revisit the pilot of the series and some season one episodes and season two and uh, and get a sense of of the show for me, like the progression that the show went on. Because for me, it's a very distinct tonal shift between season one and season two. And I really liked season one. I was on board with it. Super here for all the feminism and the, you know, watching um, Peggy deal with you know, the patriarchy, basically. But for for me, the show really went to a whole nother level and clicked when it came to season two because it 
season one, especially after watching season two, going back to season one, I had forgotten just how defined it was by Peggy's relationships with the men in her life, very specifically the specter of Steve Rogers, and how, like, really morose a lot of that season is. And then you go to season two, and it's just sunshine and banter. And I just, I, I, I as someone who has had a, an affinity for screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s. Uh, since I was a young child, it should surprise no one that that is super, like, that is my speed. I'm super there for that. Uh, and and I, it was very, it was stri- striking to me to go back and watch season one and watch the pilot, watch the finale season one, watch some of the middle episodes and just be like, yeah, it's really, she needed that sunshine of L.A., I think. Elaine, what, what do you think about that? How do, how do you see the progression of Agent Carter? So I had a lot of similar feelings. I was I was watching season one. I kind of watched season one like all in a burst before season two started. And I remember really liking it, but I, I was kind of bummed out because Peggy to me was this really strong character. And I felt like she spent too much time like pining over Steve, who obviously from the Marvel movies we know comes back and isn't dead. She doesn't know that then in the show, but it just felt like, it felt like the producers and the people who were making the show were worried that it couldn't stand on its own. So they kind of had to shoehorn in as much Captain America stuff as they could so that people would be interested. But I was already interested. And I thought that when the show kind of got rid of that and, and focused more on the characters, and I really think in season two, it became more of an ensemble show. Like there, they fleshed out some of the side characters. There was a stronger focus on the women. Like, Obviously, we get um, Anna Jarvis as um, Jarvis's wife comes in. Whitney Frost as Madame Mask is the big villain. Um, They also have Rose, who is kind of a really small character in season one, gets to go on missions with them. I really thought the show did good on its promise of having really strong female characters in the second season, whereas Peggy, in a lot of ways, even though there was Dottie and um, her her, next-door neighbor in the first season, did a way better job of kind of having a more ensemble female friendly show in the second season. It was so focused on Peggy's struggle with her male dominated workplace that it, it didn't spend enough time in season one uh, distinguishing the people in her workplace. First Very of all, true. and second of all, really fleshing out the you know, everything else. And so for me in season season one, it was a lot of potential. That's what I was seeing in it. Just, the potential of the stuff we got with Dottie was was fun, but again, could get a little one note sometimes. And and just like I kept waiting for the you know for Angie to get more to do other than just kind of being the girlfriend character, <laughs> and it never really happened uh, until like that that one speech she gives. But like, yeah, I, I so for me, season one is all about potential, and then in season two, I think they really realized that. I don't. What, how do you feel about it? And I think you're you're stronger in season one than I am. Yeah, I'm a little stronger in season one, and part because I don't really mind that her office isn't particularly fleshed out. I don't mind the fact that they're kind of all samey, patriarchy representations that she just has to deal with and deals with very enjoyably. Um, I think the other reason why I generally respond a little bit better to season one than I do to season two, and it's basically just splitting hairs because both seasons are really great for me, is that I enjoy season one's noir vibe a lot more than the sunnier, um, sunnier noir vibe that they, and the heavier science fiction vibe 
that they give to season two. So I like the heavier reliance on like shadows and uh, her navigating the office a little more aggressively, having to navigate the office a little more aggressively. Um, just appealed to me a bit more than season two's sunnier disposition did, though I did enjoy Peggy just being frustrated by the fact that LA is just endlessly sunny. <laughs> Uh, initially because i'm moving away from a place that is right now endlessly sunny and i cannot wait so um yeah i just i found season one to be a little bit stronger uh appealed to my predilections a little bit more than season two did i had forgotten just what percentage of the season uh, of season one is spent with her dealing with people who refuse to see how brilliant she is. And and I think this also ties back in with what you were saying, Elena, about the, the show or the producers or the, you know, not, you know, or maybe it's just Marvel not trusting that Haley Atwell and Peggy was enough of a draw on itself and needing to keep tie, you know, tying back into the movies this is something that we've seen um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, deal with as well. And when you have, the, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe overlapping with the Marvel TV shows, you know, there's this level of what is a big enough story and what is an interesting enough story and this idea that the cinematic stories are better somehow than the TV stories, which I don't quite understand. Um, but yeah, I had forgotten um, just how long it takes everybody else to start recognizing and um, appreciating <laughs> Peggy uh, and and when you're you I mean we're with her from the first second she's on screen I would say in the pilot and she's doing her awesome walk uh, you know in, in the hat and everything I yeah I would say we're we're team Peggy watching the show and I, while it's can be frustrating for me as a viewer I think it actually also really speaks very well to the experience of so many women <laughs> in male dominated workplaces who maybe that the workplace is not necessarily being as enlightened certainly at the time um, so in that way, it's sort of odd where I'm like, I'm frustrated as a viewer, but I also feel like thematically it kind of works. No, I think that's uh, really accurate. I, you, This idea of it thematically working, um, I think is really important and also explains probably why I like season one uh, a little bit more because I'm always happy when thematic type of parallels between ideas of like audience engagement, uh, people needing to be sold on the idea feels, and being sold on the idea of the television show, and within the show being sold on the idea of Peggy feels very meta in a lot of ways. And I just, I like those kind of larger thematic and kind of intertextual parallels that shows draw within themselves. And so that kind of a, that kind of an approach appeals to me quite a bit. Uh, so, which again explains probably why season one just appealed to me a lot more. I, what's interesting to me is I, I recently did like a big, every Marvel movie in order watch with all of my friends. And I watched, um, the first Captain America and I had so much affection for Peggy after watching two seasons of Agent Carter. But I, I was thinking when the show first started, I wonder if people were going to remember her because honestly, I didn't think she had that much to do in Captain America. So I was really happy that the show got to kind of explore more of her background and how great she is as a spy. Obviously, Captain America, his name is in the title, so that's his movie. Um, but it made me think about what what were people coming to the show? Were they Did they have a big affection for her as a character in the movie and were coming to the show really excited 
were there people that had like never watched the movies but wanted to watch this cool spy show with a, a woman lead? Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about because I feel like they do just like we were talking about kind of that overlap to really get the richest experience, you have to do both. Like you have to watch the movies and then watch the show, but I'm sure there are people who haven't, who have done one and not the other. Right. Yeah. I rewatched uh, the first Captain America semi-recently and, uh, and having seen that more recently, going back to the first season, I had a better time with it. Cause when I first watched it, I, you know, it was a little, I was a little frustrated by how passive um, Peggy is in the, the finale that they basically they mirror the phone call at the end of Captain America over the radio um, with the the end of the season one finale and the climax of that they have her speaking again instead of acting and and that is obviously that is also she has agency she is at, she is involved it's not like you need to be punching things in order to be meaningful in in an action show but um, having watched the movie more recently than when I saw that episode the first time that it did land a little better for me but um but yeah I can't imagine I don't know what people were experiencing if they hadn't seen any of the Captain America stuff I imagine having the the opening uh clip reel that they do I think I thought that actually was pretty succinct and worked pretty well in the pilot to to introduce the character and Captain America um, like the, uh, you know, Steve and everything. But um, what I really like about this show, and it's a, something of a pet peeve of mine that with Doctor Who and with other stories that end up involving time travel in some way, is that often it'll usually be a male protagonist and then and a female like love interest or good friend on, on Doctor Who. Love interest. And <laughs> then... Um, like the for whatever like there's there's time travel involved the person like they miss years of the other person's life and then they check in on them later and you find out like they're still pining away like 10 years later 15 years later 50 years later they you know it was never better than it was when they were together and that's just so depressing and sad to me so i really like that they're like you know what let's take this we have this character who's awesome who's a total badass and we see her you know we 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 find out that she had this amazing life um, when when Steve runs, you know, seeks her out at the end of Ca- Captain America and everything. So why don't we go show that life? And, and and I don't think I needed a full first season to watch her cope with and let go of Steve. Um, and maybe that's why I was so happy with, you know, the, the shift in tone in the second season. But I like that they do. They let her grieve. They let her process. And then they show her moving on with her life and having so many more adventures that are not defined by by captain america and by this this person who was very meaningful in her life but it was only really there for a matter of months that's so true i i am so happy too that she gets like she gets to have this really full rich life that doesn't involve her pining away i didn't even think about that but that's awesome and totally like in the the future film she's married and she's totally married to Sousa. That's like my head cannon. <laughs> That's happening, right? I was like waiting in the movies for them to show like a little picture of Enver. And then also in my head cannon in Avengers, Enver is there as like a police chief and that's their like son. That's, oh yeah, totally. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I can get behind that. <laughs> But I do, I love that she's like, she didn't she end up like founding S.H.I.E.L.D. and go on these amazing adventures for like the rest of her life. And right, like, yeah. I I love that the, the show doesn't, doesn't make her one of 
those kind of sad female characters who's just like waiting by the phone. Like, when will my boyfriend call? She's like, well, I'm going to do stuff in the meantime. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's one of the things that I actually like about the character over and how the character gets used within the cinematic universe, even though I think now we're going to see progress. I'm worried we'll end up seeing less of her given Marvel's current phase but stuff like um, her showing up in like newsreels um, to discuss Steve a little bit, um, or the um, the tease at the beginning of Ant Man where we see that creepily de-aged Michael Douglas uh, <laughs> uh, punch punch um, um, John Slattery. Um, that's his name, right? John yes. Slattery. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and but I mean she she it's still recognizable as like peggy at peggy carter slash Haley atwell and i just really enjoy how the show how the show and the films have utilized the character to make sure that she still feels really central to a lot of the big things that happened within the universe while steve was on ice and i think that's i think that's really significant that she's as prominent as she is in a lot of the a lot of major events that then like a lot of, a lot of the foundation for major events if you yeah. will yeah like the the blurb next to her name is is Peggy Carter founder of shield not yeah. Peggy Carter Captain America's boyfriend or you know like Betty Carver who we meet in the the radio plays oh cap um, <laughs> throughout the first season um, and, and and I like the show drawing that dis- that clear parallel to the perception of the character maybe the I don't I'm not familiar with the comics but I would imagine that's more the character in the comics is a little closer to the Betty Carver uh, than the Peggy that we get to see here um, and maybe that's bias maybe i shouldn't i probably shouldn't say anything because i haven't read them but that's that's my perception at least uh and so i like that the show's directly having that conversation and 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 taking you know what we expect for and what we uh are used to seeing shown um as important to and defining the lives of these characters uh that are that are in the the significant other role i mean regardless of gender but it's based on the stories that Marvel so far has been interested in telling, that's pretty much all the wives and the girlfriends. Um, and, and, and so it was just really refreshing to see the, to see a show directly engage with that. And when you talk about Elena, we talk about the, you know, the character popping up in different projects. I mean, I remember when she pops up on agents of shield as just sort of a surprise, uh, you know, halfway through the, the, the season, like right before. Yeah. The before Agent Carter launched, it was just such a jolt of energy because she's just so charismatic and and really great in this role and in this this genre. She handles the tone of it so incredibly well um, that that it's something that I would love to see her just you know keep popping up here and there. It's, it's she's such a strong player for them to be able to just call in from the bench. Like so, they're not telling her story anymore. Unfortunately, as the main through line of of Agent Carter, um, but. But they can certainly call her in if they need a flashback or if they need um, to add significance to to an older a, a scene set in a previous time. And that's certainly something that I hope Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. takes advantage of um, if they're going to insist on doing so many stories tied to uh, Hydra and tied to, you know, the this struggle with this longtime uh, adversary of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Peggy from the comics. Um 
apart from like her Earth 65 version in which she's the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. in that universe. And she's basically costumed a lot like Nick Fury down to the eye patch. It's really interesting. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, you can find her in the um, Spider-Gwen comic um, where she pops up every now and then where uh, Captain America is Samantha Wilson, um, which is great as well. Um, so I'm not familiar with her like directly in the comics, though. I think she's most mostly in like World War II stories. I don't think she gets much of a presence or much of a story told outside of the World War II stuff. Um, yeah, I. But she's a good, like you said, Kate. She's a good utility character for the sh- uh, for the for the franchise for the universe. I'm not quite sure what we need to call that anymore, <laughs> but. She does add a significant amount of gravitas and charisma to things. And I think a lot of that just has to do with Atwell as well, who's so game for this character yeah. in a lot of really delightful ways. She, and it's something where I was thinking about this with, with that performance from Haley Atwell, because she gets a lot of praise from people like us. Um, but when you, like you said, Elena, she's like barely in Captain America. She's, she's in it. Not insignificantly, but really, if you look at her screen time, it's not that much. But she's constantly making the most of what she's given. And she imbues what should or could very easily be a one-dimensional character with so much humanity. Uh, and that that's with the, that's very much the performance. But in the show, it's also very much the writing, I would say. That they give her this whole range of reactions to what she's experiencing. And, and they give her... They give her triumphs they give her defeats but they also give her these lovely little small moments of um of clarity and and character that that are really um i think really effective and the one i always think of is in the season one finale when they uh when when jack thompson is getting all the 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 praise for her work basically and she it's she un sarcastically completely sincerely does not bother her does not face her she does not care because she knows her worth. And that's something that I just, I love seeing that, that little moment. And it, I mean, it would be so easy for that to feel tinge. Like a lot of other shows, I think, would tinge that with just a little bit of bitterness or like with like a stiff upper lip kind of feel. But she, she's completely sincere. And that that really separates kind of who she is, who that character is um, for me. And, and the way that Atwell takes these little lines, very like four words, and, and delivers it you get a sense of the entirety of the character. And that's what I think really distinguishes her in the films, in S.H.I.E.L.D., Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but also but also in Agent Carter, that really strong core to the character that Atwell had from the first time she was on screen. I think she is... I, I she must, It's so obvious to me that she has such an affection for this character because she's so good at playing Peggy that you would have to really be in love with the character you're playing to do it so well, or I would hope. I think that it's at least what I think. Um, I We haven't talked about this, but one of my favorite parts of season two was when they did the like dream sequence where everyone was dancing and singing. And I think that I couldn't have imagined that scene in season one with the more darker noir feel, but it fits in totally well with the LA setting, especially because the front for um, their agency is like a talent agency, but that I, that was one of my favorite moments of television period. I was so happy people are doing like soft shoe and singing <laughs> this like Hollywood, like old school Broadway ballad. 
And it, I didn't have anything to do really with what the show was doing at that time. And I'm still really not sure who came together and was like, let's do a big dance number. But I was so happy that someone suggested that. It was so fun. Yeah, well, absolutely. And again, that for me speaks to the tone of that second of that second season and you know that the the glamour uh, that they're going for the hollywood field hollywood feel and glamour tinged with again still that element of noir which is throughout both seasons but but yeah i mean it's like they it's like they said what would be the most fun thing we can do and so so for me the theme of the second season what the energy they're going for the first season was very much about that like darker world and fighting against the patriarchy and all of this different stuff and, and the noir and the, you know, like a drizzly, drizzly, dark back alley. And then season two is just let's have it be fun. <laughs> Quippy fun. Still plenty of fighting the patriarchy, especially in our, in our, uh, like, it's like season two is the island of misfit toys. Because you've got the, 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 the starlet who can't, isn't respected for her intellect. Uh, you've got the African-American scientist who gets mistaken for the janitor. You've got the nerd who never gets invited out with the popular kids. You've got Rose, the woman who's of a different body type than we usually see on television, also kicking ass. It's like all these different underrepresented uh, different kinds of people. And I just I just love it so much. Um, but yeah, uh, having having that just why not? Why not have a dream sequence song and dance number and we'll like have Jarvis in a, in the tail in tails and a bow tie surrounded by like Dottie in a showgirl outfit. I mean, why not? No. And I think why not is a really good encapsulation of season two in general, because whether or not they knew it or not, I feel like season two is very much a, all right, let's try to do as much as possible because the likelihood of us getting a second, a third season, I should say, seems really low and one of the things i actually admired a lot about both of the uh showrunners for agent carter is that after season two wrapped up and when while the show was still in the bubble they were just like yeah we're not really optimistic because nobody watched it and um you know fan campaigns don't really make a huge difference in this case so just you know save time i guess guys i know you'll miss it but just save save time and just be happy with it you got two seasons basically and that's really like nice i i've i've been frustrated with showrunners who are just like yeah if people make enough noise maybe we can do something about it i'm just like realistically sometimes it's really not the case and so i feel like that was the approach with season two where they were just like we're going to go as big as we can and as fun as we can just in case this is the last thing that we get to do for who knows how long and i think that's a really good mentality to go into this season with and it showed with a lot of what they did can we talk for a second about the ratings and how it started it debuted with just under seven million viewers and the show as far as i'm concerned just got better as it went along and it ended with a with two under two and a half million viewers wow wtf viewers this is why we don't get nice things <laughs> i wonder what happened oh that's so fascinating it's I like a steady decline over the two seasons too it's like it's not like all of a sudden there's a it falls off a cliff it's like under just under seven million for the first two part premiere drop down to five million the next week and then a steady every now and again it'll go up just a tiny bit but basically a steady decline 
every episode from there on out. And I don't get it. Maybe people were expecting Chris Evans to show up and take his shirt off and he just never did. So they're like, I'm out. <laughs> well, God, who doesn't want that every now and then? Of course. Of course. <laughs> Anyways, but we should, before we run out of time here, we should talk about a few of these other characters. Oh, yeah. Like, for example, how much I loved Jarvis and the, the, the back and forth of those two characters. And I had forgotten just how inept he is by the, oh. the beginning of the show. <laughs> He has a he has a quite a curve. Like he gets he gets good at that that pithy you know line delivery while do, driving a getaway car like really quick. But in the when he's first introduced and you like think he's like a tough who's there to try to beat up Peggy, it's so different. I can't even remember him in the early seasons. Like their relationship is so imprinted on my mind from season two. I I did I went back and watched a couple episodes in season one I was like oh they're like still getting to know each other which is good I mean that's how shows work you progress the relationship but it was it's nice for it's nice to have it's nice to have seen that relationship really get some great progression where they really are trusting and relying on one another so much um and do have they're like partners in crime I think that's the best part about their relationship is they Jarvis is, like, game for anything. He loves Peggy. He's down for whatever. He, like, can't really do a lot of things. He gets better. Um, mm-hmm. But she's always – she, she like, can rely on him. And it's nice to have that kind of relationship between a man and a woman. Not that people can't, like – I'm sure people ship them all over the place. I don't know. Um, but I enjoyed that they were just friends. Absolutely. Uh, I always really enjoyed um, – even though she was recurring, I really enjoyed Dottie for the most part. Um, just in part for Bridget uh, Reagan's performance. Um, but I think that the character was a nice juxtaposition for Peggy, which is what she was intended to be. And I think that it served to make sure that she was more defined than she was by just being, oh, here's our connection to another connection to the movies through Black Widow and everything. No, no, more that she's more than that in terms of just as a character, in terms of what she wants, how she responds to things. And I always enjoyed the juxtaposition of her against Peggy and then the show making that really explicit in the season two opener where she's dressed up as Peggy robbing a bank. <laughs> because why not? <laughs> Again, because why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to go back to to Peggy and Jarvis briefly, and I would say also Peggy and and Dottie, that relationship and that the you know connection of those two characters is one that the show really excelled at as well. But but it's hard to th- like they this is a show that has had eighteen episodes between two seasons. Can you think of another show on network TV that or any TV that's not limit ourselves that makes as strong a friendship in eighteen episodes? or 17, I should say, that we are on the edge of our seats. When they have their big dust-up and they're big falling out in the desert, I was like, I was 100% in with it. I was so invested in the hard truths that they were saying to each other because, first of all, the show had established their the primacy of their friendship and their collaboration, so I was incredibly invested in that being salvaged. But they also let them just say ugly things to each other. Um, in a way that I think a lot of shows back away from. When you think of, a sh- you know, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., for example, and how much they really want me to care about those characters, and I really don't because they've done a terrible job investing in me in anyone who's not Fitzsimmons. Um, but, like, it's, it's, it's just the, 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 the strength of that relationship and of the, the, the chemistry of the two actors, but also just the, the way that they 
progress it over time, the bond that they created with those two characters, that's incredibly impressive for 18 episodes. I know. I just remembered that it was 18 episodes. I thought it was more for some reason, but it was eight in the first and then 10 in the second. I think just like you were saying, Kate, before how Haley Atwell does such a great job of imbuing meaning and gravitas in these like small phrases. I think that's really what for me made the Jarvis and Peggy relationship significant. It, it it was all those like little moments that they were like getting ready to go somewhere or coming back from something and like having a conversation or like doing little pithy things to one another. It was all those small moments. I, I think it was the show not trying as hard knowing that these two people already had really great chemistry in real life as showcased by all their like really funny YouTube videos and all of their like little Snapchats and stuff. Um, they already have really great chemistry. So all we need to do is really like write to that. And then they did. And so sometimes when television makes me want to care about people too much, then I don't because I see them trying too hard. I think <laughs> you see this the strings. Was a, yeah. I think this was a great example of them knowing, Hey, we have really great characters. We know we're going to put them in scenarios where they'll have to trust one another or learn to trust one another. And then that develops, I, I mean, as much as something that you write every week really on purpose can develop organically. I think to me, that's what it felt like. So it, I was more invested in them um, and their relationship. Hmm. Well, do we have any final characters that we want to mention? Because we are already past our time. I know we could keep talking for quite a while, but let, let's let's throw it around and each say uh, a, a moment, an episode, a character that uh, that we really appreciated, or maybe, you know, not so much. <laughs> we haven't mentioned that, but there's certainly some uh, unfortunate moments in these two seasons. Uh, Nolan, I'm going to throw it to you first. Sure. Um, I think probably, even though, it's, even though we've discussed a lot about how season one is maybe too tied toward uh, Cap- the first Captain America film, I still really love the Iron Ceiling, where she goes back into Russia and has the Howling Commandos and is leading the ha- Howling Commandos uh, around um, Russia. And we also, you know, get that great scene of her just firing a machine gun, uh, which is the best. Um, <laughs> so I really enjoy Iron Ceiling, and I enjoy seeing her interact with the Howling Commandos in a really direct way, which is something we didn't get in the film either. And that that always felt very much of something that probably should have been in the movie a lot more than it was, given her obvious prominence within the organization and everything that was running Captain America's stuff um, at the time. So I I always felt like that was kind of a nice corrective for the character and for like that those dynamics in general. Um, but for another character, um, I'll just. I have to give love to Ken Marino and Joseph Manfredi. So good. God, he's so good. I mean, he just swoops in and like what the last like maybe five, four or five episodes of season two as this ridiculous mobster who's in love with Whitney Frost. And he's so good. He's so good. And I mean, Manfredi just becomes this really immediate character that you didn't know the show needed. But now you're just like, I never want the show to leave L.A. because then they leave Manfredi behind and that would be terrible. Please don't leave L.A. show. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, totally Manfredi um, as just a really kind of, well, could have been a really, like, horrible throwaway character, but because they gave it to Ken Marino, it's immediately something really special. It's so cheesy and corny and and one-dimensional until it's not, the, that yeah. performance. And they, 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 they make him this cardboard cutout villain 
uh, or like like Mook, basically. Yeah. Yes. And, and then they give him all this depth in his interactions with uh, with Whitney, and then they turn it right back to ridiculously over the top as soon as they need that 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 more comedic tone. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great call, um, Elena. Any other characters or moments that you wanted to mention? I just because now Dominic Cooper's on Preacher, I loved him as Howard Stark. I was actually really bummed when they cast John Slattery as future Howard Stark. I don't know why they couldn't have just done the same thing with Cooper and put him in like old man makeup like they did with Atwell, but whatever. Um, I loved him. I thought he always, it was like always the appropriate amount of Howard. Like he came in, he was funny. He and Peggy have a great dynamic. Um, And then he would kind of like drive the plot forward and then like leave for six or seven episodes and come back. Um, but he had him and Ken Marino were so funny when they kind of got together in one of the last episodes of season two. Um, but I loved the way that I had a real, like I really developed an affinity for Howard Stark, which made all the stuff in civil war. I thought a lot more effective for me because I was like, Oh, Howard, I know you like, (laughs) I remember you dude, like what's going down. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that Dominic Cooper has a new show because I thought he was so he was so good in Agent Carter the way that he used him, and I'm I'm happy. Preacher is very interesting. Not Agent Carter. He's not Howard Stark anymore, but it's very interesting. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the some some moments that really stood out to me. Um, the most effective I think part of season one or I guess episode sequence I would say was the the I thought they did the the mind control stuff that they did was really effective, and the scene the episode we get with with a Shea Wiggum's character being mind controlled like that, that villain that we get and, you know, ending in his death um, was incredibly effective. I thought that was, they really delivered with that. Um, And (laughs) the way that he gets taken out, which is like uh, earplugs (laughs) was, was pretty great. Um, But also in um, the character that I feel like we, the show never got right. And it was actually kind of frustrating. It, it's a, it remains a frustration for me over the, the two seasons is Chad Michael Murray as Jack Thompson because he should be really good in this show. I don't think it's Murray's fault. I think it's the writers because I don't think that they knew what they wanted to do with him or how what they wanted to commit to him as. And so they spent way too long, especially in season two, with him as... Like, like trying to play, oh, whose side is he really on? Like, way too long. And uh, and that really, I think, was a wasted opportunity. And in season one, he's there to to not, to, to be an, a, a point of um, conflict for Peggy. And then they give him, like, that they share, the two of them share that great scene in, in season one where we find out, like, his dark secret or whatever, his shame about his, his service. And then, and we get some development there. And then they didn't really follow through on that in season two. They spent too long with the question of is he going to be seduced away basically by Hydra um and Which wasn't helped by the fact that they were basically on the agents of shield doing that with Brett Dalton's character with Ward and it's just like oh god we don't need this again we really really <laughs> don't um so yeah that was one where I was when he was cast I was like really but I thought I think he works Chad Michael Murray I think he works in the show just I that's one that unfortunately I gotta put on the down at the feet of the, of the writers um but I will say that uh I I think an element we haven't even mentioned and I think that speaks to how significant it is uh is Souza's uh his his the fact that he doesn't have a leg 
I love that the show never like healed him or fixed him because he doesn't need to be fixed. There's nothing wrong with him. Um, and that's something that when they first introduce uh, him as, as having lost his leg in the war and he's, he's walking on his crutch and everything. And they introduce the idea, oh, we're doing things with the Vita energy. It's like, oh, they're going to they're going to have him get healed by the Vita energy at some point on the show. And they never did. And I was, I'm so glad that that is the case, uh, because that's another, you know, we talk about or I talked about the Island of Misfit Toys. That's another underrepresented group. That he has a you know a character not defined by what makes him different in, in season two, and that that's Sousa. Um, so that's just an element um, to the character that, or to the show, an element of representation that I was really glad to see be incorporated fully as part of who Sousa is, but not the only thing that defines him. And I'm I know Noel, your main ship is Peggy and her guns, but yes, <laughs> but I'm so on board the Peggy Sousa thing. I'm with you with the head cannon, Elena. I'm all aboard that ship. And um, rewatching the season two premiere, I was just like, when Peggy runs into uh, Doctor Wilkes, and it's like. I'm supposed, you're telling me there's supposed to be chemistry here, but there's none. And then they cut back to Sousa and he's like flirting with the receptionist. And I'm like, how are you? How you doing, Enver? How you doing? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see. I mean, of course, I've been a a fan of that actor since Dollhouse. So hopefully he'll get another project soon. But um, uh, the the casting, I think, on the show overall was really strong. And um, in these main roles, even if they, not all the characters, I think, got used to the extent of their abilities and that's why I'm still holding out hope even though we're DVD shelving it that maybe down the line they'll do they'll do another like a movie or something like that like I, I could see this as like a series of specials that they do when they need to like promote a new Marvel thing I, on that note uh, the dreams for the future and hopes for the future with Agent Carter hopefully this isn't the last time we'll ever see the character whether it's on um, in the cinematic universe or the TV universe but it's been a, a lot of fun talking about Agent Carter with you Elena where can our listeners find you and your work online so I am taking a hiatus from freelance writing right now but all of my tweets and thoughts and musings can be found on Twitter at Elena is awesome um, and if I do start writing anytime soon, that will, I'll definitely post it there. Elena is awesome. Cosign the Televerse. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much you. for coming back on. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Mm-hmm.